you're listening to The Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages. We bring you the choicest medieval nonsense, discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. Happy Halloween. (laughs) I see you've got a thematic uh, headband. I do. It's my pumpkin spice headband because I am a basic bitch in that (laughs) regard. I love everything pumpkin. And I will shamelessly, shamelessly enjoy my pumpkin-themed everything, as long as it lasts. Even though pumpkin spice is characterized by the absence of pumpkin? Is it? It's the stuff you would put in a pumpkin pie, but no actual pumpkin. Well, that's depressing, and that's not how I make my own pumpkin spice. I have questions about making your own pumpkin spice. Well, like, I make my own pumpkin spice lattes and stuff. I did not know that was something you could do. Oh, yeah. Like, you get canned pumpkin. Wait, you put actual pumpkin in them? Yeah. Wild. Yeah, it's like, okay, I really enjoy it. You get, like, a pumpkin and you get cinnamon and you do get the actual pumpkin spice. And you make, like, a simple syrup out of it. And you strain it. And so you have, like, a coffee syrup. And so yours does include pumpkin. It does include pumpkin, yes. That's blowing my mind. (laughs) I just love everything pumpkin. And it really annoys me that pumpkin is very hard to find here because in america you can go to any supermarket and you can find canned pumpkin no matter the time of year but in ireland there is no such thing as canned pumpkin you have to go to the specialty food store and they only have it seasonally and so it's only available from like october through mid-november And so I buy a bunch of cans and I hoard it and I still have two cans from last year and they're still good, but I need some more pumpkin. (laughs) I'm surprised they have it uh, seasonally because is Halloween really a big deal over there? It's not really, not like America. It's very commercialized in America, so much more so than here in Ireland, but there's some displays and things, but it's not really a huge thing. And then, since there's no Thanksgiving, like, there's already Christmas stuff out. It's October. I know, I know, but there's already Christmas stuff out, and it drives me insane. Like, we have Halloween. Halloween is the benchmark, you know? Like, if you don't have Thanksgiving, I understand you can put the Christmas stuff out in November, but no. No. Halloween stays Halloween. I think I saw some Christmas stuff out at Lowe's already, too. Oh, I can't. I can't. No. Like, we're going to start celebrating Christmas in August, and I'm just going to start crying. Hey, maybe eventually we'll start celebrating it on the day that the historical Jesus was actually born. We might as well at this point, like (laughs) mid-May. We'll just jump straight from Easter to Christmas. Oh, man. Okay. But this week, I thought, since we're celebrating Halloween... I thought we would jump back into some of the traditions and try and sort out where some of the Halloween traditions came from. Uh, Because I really love Halloween. It's one of my favorite holidays. It's always been one of my favorite holidays. Or All Hallows' Eve or All Saints' Day or uh, Samhain or Samhain, however you pronounce it. I'm not very good at it. But the Celtic tradition, if you prefer that one. So I thought we would start there. And believe it or not, it was actually incredibly difficult to find medieval and early material directly about Halloween's origins, which I was really surprised about. Like for all of the studies on witchcraft and magic and stuff that I'm doing, finding stuff that directly related to Halloween that wasn't basically 17th, 18th, 19th century was really hard. That is... Mm. I mean, I guess it's not that surprising because it would be a 
pagan. Samhain is a pagan thing, so they would avoid writing anything down. But the interesting thing about it is that Halloween's Christian tradition is actually incredibly early, and it's earlier than I thought it was. So, so we're gonna we're gonna, anyway we're gonna jump into that. And if anyone out there has any extra special expertise on Halloween, I'm very interested because I was scouring JSTOR and Trinity's library trying to find documents about this. Even secondary literature about Halloween was hard to come by. And I don't know if it's just because it's not digitized or because the libraries are shut down due to COVID. I don't know. But it was trickier than I thought to find any like actual scholarly material. So I did find a couple of things, but for the most part, it's going to be like folk tales that I finally rooted out from uh, more traditional books. <laughs> so that's where we're going to start. Wait, your libraries are still shut down? The libraries are open for students to come in and it's very strange. So you're not allowed to come in and sit or you can like book a space to come in and study or sit, but it's only for certain hours and there's limited hours and there's limited spaces. So like you can put a bunch more people in the library than you than are actually in the library. And to me, I don't think it makes a lot of sense. Like I understand we have to be cautious, but you can fit a lot more people in the library than you are. It's very empty. It's very strange. I guess it's just about making sure it doesn't get crowded. Yeah, but I mean, you've got whole floors that are empty. So I don't know, but that's not something I'm in charge of. That's the government and Trinity's job. I do know that one of my course mates who was in, she was in Texas, those libraries were still closed. So she wasn't able, like she came back to Dublin because she couldn't actually do her dissertation because the libraries in Texas mm. were still closed. Ours is open now, but you can't touch the books. You can't touch the books? You have to put in a request with a librarian and they'll get one oh, for you. Oh, that makes sense. That's how we were doing it. If something's in the stacks, you have to request it from the stacks, obviously. But you can actually go into the library and pick out the book, but you have to know which book you're going to get so you don't touch any of the other books. Mm. So it's very strange. I feel like we're going to start bringing back like the book chains, you know, in the library so no one like take, takes the books or steals the books. feels very medieval. Yeah, I... I read the name of the rose over the summer, and that's what I kept thinking of. <laughs> yes, exactly. The forbidden library, the knowledge that can never be brought out again. We are going back to that, and it's just, it makes me sad. <laughs> there are these big sheets of plastic covering the bookshelves in a hissy library. Are you serious? You can't have people breathing on the books, so you might oh get them sick. Oh my gosh. Even Trinity hasn't done that. Oh, that's very strange. Well, we are we are in the middle of a state that has historically not been taking COVID very seriously. That's yeah, that's fair. <laughs> At the beginning of the outbreak, we were one of the states that it just didn't touch because mm. why would anyone go to Indiana? Fair enough. Fair enough. But because of our inability to actually do anything about it, I think now we're about right in the middle in number of COVID cases. I was gonna say because the people that got hit real hard at the beginning, like New York. Like, that spiked, and then it went down, and so it stayed down. And then, like, sort of the middle of the U.S., it's sort of been a steady trend upward that's going to go back down again, I think. Yeah, I saw a wild graphic that was um, states by political affiliation and number of COVID cases oh boy. over time. Oh, boy. 
and if you, like and it's animated so you can just sit there and watch like all the the deeper blue the state is the quicker it like drifts down wow. because those are the ones that took that like that took it seriously in science wow that's amazing that's amazing. And then the ones who were like, I'm sure that President Trump is right, and there's nothing to worry about. You can see them go up. Oh, dear. That's so frustrating. Yeah, I wish people would take it more seriously here. People are like still going on holiday, or they'll go into Northern Ireland in order to fly out of Northern Ireland because there's more travel options. Or they'll, they'll fly into Northern Ireland, and then when they cross the border and come into Dublin, they don't, have, they don't technically have to quarantine because like they drove in from Northern Ireland so they weren't technically abroad but they were they just flew in to like shortcut it mm-hmm. so it's it's very frustrating and like the more I look at it the more I see it's a worldwide phenomenon it's not isolated to the states who are acting poorly like people people in Dublin are not not being smart about this and it's very frustrating <laughs> like lads don't go to the pub please it's not a not a good idea right now the states are apparently the worst, though. We have the yep. still we still have the highest number of cases. Yep, yep, yep. We yep. are number one. We are number oh, one. Oh dear, in all the wrong ways. Ugh. All right, but uh Given the COVID update. <laughs> yeah, sorry. No, that's Got okay. Distracted. That's okay. I mean, that's all there is to talk about at this point. Like, other than like, I'm doing the dissertation, going to the gym and doing this and that is basically my life right now so there's nothing else to talk about or to do anyway um but okay okay so halloween or all hallows eve or Halloween, however whatever you want to call it uh it is sort of known as being a more pagan holiday depending on which tradition you come up in and sort of depending on that tradition or how you grew up sometimes especially highly christian parents my neighbors were among them in alaska would not let their kids go out trick-or-treating or wouldn't they wouldn't decorate because it's a, it's a pagan quote-unquote holiday there's been a recent revival of neo-pagans and wiccans who've quote-unquote taken back the holiday so that's been really interesting to get into and to study because i realized okay some of the traditions that these wiccans and neo-pagans have taken back are actually Christian in origin. So I thought that was really interesting because sort of how we talked about like the Gestern and Romanorum has these issues. Uh, a lot of the Irish sagas have the have these issues where the lines between what is pagan and what is Christian get really blurred. And what is a pagan tradition? What is a, a Christian tradition? Where do we draw that line? Where do we find the origin? It's kind of hard to tell. So that has a lot to do with Halloween traditions. So hopefully we'll get into some of that. Okay, so from the very top, if we go back to the earliest, earliest traditions, and that's the pre-Christian traditions, the Samhain, Samhain, I really can't say that word. I think it's uh, Samhain. Samhain. Because yeah. as I kept researching it, there were different, like every article had a different way of how you pronounce it. And so I never knew. So Samhain. Oh. Yeah. The way, the way I usually see it written out is like, it's a, it's an emphasis on the ah, and then the W-N is just kind of smushed together. Smushed into, on. Like, that, would, yeah. that would make Samhain. sense. Samhain. Okay. So anyway, the earliest tradition of celebrating October 31st was from the pre-Christian, Celtic, or Gaelic tradition of measuring the year. And the Celts 
sensibly split up the year into four basic seasons based upon light and dark. Hey, we do that. Yes. So that gives us the modern spring and autumn equinoxes and the summer and winter solstices. So the solstices are when the sun is at its highest or its lowest point in the year and the equinoxes are sort of when it's equal and spring is when it starts getting lighter and then autumn is when it starts getting darker and darker. It's especially notable in the most northern and southern reaches of the globe. So in Alaska, it's a really big deal. So we do summer solstice festivals a lot because it's light literally all the time. And in the winter, it's dark pretty much every single hour of the day. The sun won't come above the mountaintops. So that's just dark and dreary, but it makes for a really nice white Christmas. So we do take those pretty seriously in Alaska. And so likewise, since um, Scandinavia, Iceland, Ireland, kind of the British Isles are sort of higher up there than the rest of Europe, the Celts put in a special emphasis on the equinoxes and the solstices. Every time you talk about Alaska, I go, man, that sounds nice. Maybe I should go up there. And then I remember that it's always cold. (laughs) I mean, once you deal with the cold, so you could be a snowbird. You could go up there for the summer months and then come back for the winter months. I don't want to give up having an actual summer, though. But it is an actual summer. It's nice in the summer. It'll get up to like 70 degrees some days. See, that's still not even warm enough to turn off the heat in your house. Oh my gosh, you are completely wrong about that. It is like 46 degrees here today, and we have not turned the heat on yet. Celsius or Fahrenheit? Fahrenheit. You're a crazy person. (laughs) I mean, yes. What does that have to do with the weather? (laughs) So, because human nature means that we love festivals... The Celts decided that we're going to have a corresponding festival, which with each one of these seasons. So those are traditionally known as Imbolc, Beltane, Lamas, which is also known by its Irish name, which is Lucena, which has a yeah, horrible Lamas spelling. Lamas is a Christian name. Yeah, so Lamas is the Christian name, but the Irish pronunciation is Lucena, which is spelled differently. So it's L-U-G-H-N-A-S-A-D-H. Yeah, for uh, the god and, Luke, right? Yeah, for Luke, yeah. And then there's sewing. So an expanded calendar was also developed later on, which does include some of the Christian holidays, including Yule, which is analogous to Christmas. There's Ostara, Letha, and Mabon as well. So people who are sort of interested in those more Celtic traditions or who go by those seasons might be more familiar with that calendar as opposed to our Romano-centric 12-month calendar. Oh yeah, and I made a note here. So each of these festivals has a highly integrated Christian tradition because Christian culture became so pervasive in England and Ireland and it would be disingenuous to say otherwise. So yes, these had pagan origins and also it became so highly integrated with Christian culture that sometimes what we see as, or what what people want to celebrate as highly pagan is actually not that highly pagan and that's no disrespect or no offense to those traditions it's just sort of we've flipped the narrative so much that some of these things have become anachronistic (laughs) is my point Mm -hmm. and a lot of it is to do with uh, the early church co-opting pagan practices just so they could make conversion easier for example this came up in my master's thesis which is why I, i know it lamas 
is actually a contraction of the old English phrase hlofmas, meaning loaf mass, because this was a, an invention of the church in the British Isles. It wasn't something they did elsewhere. They were taking over a local harvest festival mm. by, by basically having the population bring the first fruits of the grain harvest to the church in the form of uh, loaves, loaf mass. But it, it, it was just a harvest festival that pre-existed the church that they decided to take over and call Loaf Mass. Loaf Mass. Lamas. Lamas. Oh, that is really cool. I did not know that. And then, yeah, I think Ostara has connections with the early Celtic goddess. What's her name? Aostra? Yes, Aostra. Yeah. Uh, so there's also that connection, which is on like the other side of the calendar. And Mayday and things like that. And then I think it was I think it was Bede who sort of recreated the uh, months of the year in the Old English, uh, or at least he he wrote them down. And I really like them, and I have integrated them into my D and D campaign. So I'll just read them off because I really enjoy them. So there's Yule, which is Julie. There's Solmonath, so sun month, which celebrates the beginning of the sun's rising. So that's basically analogous to February. There's Hredmonath, which is the fierce month. So that's March. So that's where we get the tradition of, or the saying, in like a lion, out like a lamb. Then there's Estormonath, which goes back to Osara um, and the goddess's name, which I'm going to have you pronounce again. I think it's Eastra. Eastra. That sounds right. The EO always gets me at the beginning of that one. But that's her month. And so that would be analogous to our April. Incidentally, fans of Neil Gaiman will know Eastra from her cameo in American Gods. Ooh, notable, notable. And I think she also has a brief cameo in some of the Witcher books as well. And of course, fans of Christianity will know her from her cameo in the word Easter. <laughs> yes, also very true. <laughs> yeah, so even Easter has has these very early pagan pagan traditions, pagan roots. And again, this is why I'm really emphasizing sort of this integration between pagan and Christian tradition is because at this point we can't really separate the two. So if you celebrate Christmas, you are celebrating things that have to do with early pagan tradition just as much as you are celebrating Jesus Christ. Like you cannot split those apart at this point. There is three milchi, which is analogous to May, and that was so called because it's starting to get warmer, it's starting to get into summer, and you can milk the cows three times a day. There's Lida, which also refers to June and July, so that's kind of smushed together into one really big season, referring to the mild seasons. There's Weodmonath, which is weed month, because that's August, so that's when the weeds start popping up. There's Halekmonath, which is the holy month, which is analogous to our September. Then there's Winterfilith, which is the beginning of winter, and that's October. So again, that's when the autumn equinox is, so that's traditionally when we celebrate the beginning of winter, which is what All Saints Day would be, and that's also what uh, Samhain would be. And then there's Blodmonath, which is month of blood, which refers to um, the slaughtering of cattle for meat, and that's November. And then there's Yule again, which refers to the Christmas tide and the Christmas season. So that is the, I guess, Anglo, the Anglo-Saxon calendar, if you will, split up into months. So that would be about, 
I think that's 10, 10 months. So they didn't quite have 12 months yet at that point, but also it's more than the, the four seasons or the, the eight seasons of the Celtic calendar. Yeah. Someday we should do Bede. We should give him a couple episodes. We should do Bede. Yeah, we've, we've neglected Bede there. The venerable Bede. The venerable Bede, indeed. There's Okay, so along with this Celtic tradition, there's also some Roman influence with Halloween, or what we refer to as Halloween, which is Fernalia, which was a holiday celebrated in late October, which also celebrated the passing of the dead and the deceased. So with the beginning of the seasons changing, you also have rituals that represent the passing of the dead. So we're combining Celtic influence and uh, Roman influence with early Christian tradition. So when in Rome, well, you might as well start celebrating these holidays at the same time. You're already celebrating it. You're not going to stick out as much. You can co-opt it for easier conversion, as, as Max said. So that's sort of the reason why all of these holidays are sort of jam-packed at the same seasonal time, even though they belong to different cultures, is because you might as well just put these together. And also human nature, when it gets darker, you start celebrating darker things. When it gets lighter, you start celebrating birth and revival and so on and so forth. So there is also kind of a biological connection there. <laughs> And this is also the reason that Christmas is suspiciously celebrated right near the winter solstice. Yes, yes. Also very notable there. Yeah, we're not literally celebrating Christ's actual birthday during Christmas, which makes some nativity plays very suspect. Bring back Saturnalia. Sounds more fun anyway. (laughs) Okay, so once Christianity arrived in Northern Europe and Ireland around 500, so Patrick arrived in Ireland at... 432 is when he was supposed to traditionally have arrived in Ireland, the culture began to change. So that's basically two full millennia of Christian Halloween tradition there. So it's hard to argue for Halloween or even Samhain really being a purely pagan holiday, but it's also not fully Christianized for a while either. So Pope Gregory III named November 1st as All Saints Day or Hallowmas. And that celebrated, first it celebrated the saints, which is where All Saints Day comes from. And then he also included the martyrs with that. And so it starts um, celebrate, people start celebrating the passing of the dead. So it's saints, martyrs, and also the dead. And since many holidays begin with vigils the night before, everything sort of shifted over by a night to October 31st instead of November 1st. So that's sort of why it's celebrated at the end of the month and not the first. Unless you are in Latin America, in which case you have Dia de los Muertos, which is still celebrated November 1st and is part of that same tradition that you were just describing. Yes, Day of the Dead. They have the best cooking. Anyway, that is a side note, but I love how colorful it is. That's one of my favorite parts about... The Dia de los Maesos. Bleh. My accent is not very good. But yes, the Day of the Dead. So there are some general beliefs about the holiday, which were held by the medievals that were kind of Christian, kind of not Christian, which is the equinox signifies a liminal time, so a time of change. So dawn and dusk were believed to be sort of when the veils were thinnest. So you didn't just have the world that you see around you. There's also the ether, there's heaven, there's hell. There's sort of this other world that sort of sits like a veil on top of our world, which is, you know, the elves pop in and out, the fairies pop in and out. So we've seen that in some of our stories already, people just popping up and then disappearing again. That's 
where they're coming from, I suppose, is one way you could put it. So the equinoxes, especially going into the winter equinox, was the time or is the time when those veils are thinnest, when we are least separate from the dead, the occult, etc. So communing with the dead and raising of the dead is a lot easier at this time. So it's at this time you'd have the traditional, you'd have vigils, you would have prophecies or foretellings, divination would be very popular at this time, and then burial ceremonies or, I'm trying to think, there was something else, but it flew away. Necromancy. Also necromancy, yeah. Um which, as I mentioned in a previous a previous episode, which just it just makes me laugh so much that historically speaking, clerics were the ones who were most often the necromancers. Like the, mm-hmm. the, we're not talking about you know witches in cabins or guys in their basements raising the dead. We're talking about actual priests and clerics who were the number one necromancers during the medieval period. Well, they're the ones who can read the spell books. Well, yeah, they're the ones who can read the spell books, and it's also okay. Well, I've got power over demons, so here we go. <laughs> you know, you know, I didn't flunk out of med school for nothing. You know, you fail at Oxford, you might as well go be a priest and <laughs> become a necromancer. It's uh, another. <laughs> that would be a great D and D character concept: someone who's a necromancer <laughs> because they failed to be be a doctor and they're just really stubborn. I think that would be hilarious. I cured him. But Doc, he's already dead. Oh. Oh, well then, I can help you. So, yeah. um, That always gets me. So anyway, it was at this point in time when whether or not you were communing with demons or dead relatives or whoever, the your opportune time to do this would be at Sawain or at Hallowmas, basically at the Equinox. Because cosmologically speaking... In the realm of the cosmos, your best time to do this is when the veils are at their thinnest, which is at the equinox. It is a shame we can't translate all your hand motions into a diagram <laughs> for the blog. I've got all my, yeah, my little hand motions for these things. Also, if Pixar is to be believed, it's the best time because that giant bridge uh, appears between the land of the dead and Earth. Yes! What's that film called? Is that Coco? Coco. Yeah! It's very good. It's very, very good. I really enjoy that one. The colors are amazing. The music is amazing. But yeah, like that's, that's an example of what we're talking about here, is that bridge is the strongest at that point, both metaphorically and literally, I suppose, and supernaturally in the medieval tradition. And one thing that I particularly want to emphasize, because this is my area of expertise, is that everything in the medieval world was both moral and supernatural. We walk around thinking like, haha, ghosts and things. Yes, that's, you know, it's it's fairy tale stuff. Dragons are fairy tale stuff. But to a medieval, everything has a moral implication and a supernatural implication. So the idea that you have to protect your house and protect your family from, for instance, the wild hunt showing up, which is like a band of fae kind of crossing the countryside, particularly in Ireland. Like You would actually have to protect yourself from that. That was something that you were worried about just as much as you were worried about marauders, for instance. So just to emphasize that, because I think it's very important. So let's jump into some of the traditions. And then I thought we could do a werewolf story. So I know you know the in the Lay of Marie de France there's Bisclavere, which is the werewolf story that we all know and love. Mm-hmm. 
But one thing that I wasn't sure whether you knew about, so I decided I wanted to surprise you, is that there is an Icelandic saga, which is a retelling of this story. I did not know that. Yeah, so I found I found a great translation of it, and I thought we would do both because they're pretty short. Does that make it a thotter, or is it a saga? It's technically, I think it's technically called a saga. Let me pull it up. It is Tidal Saga. Oh. Yes. That's wild. So it must we, be a very short saga. It is a very, very short saga. Because uh, the lay is also very short. So we'll we'll jump yeah. into that one in a little bit. But first, let's, I want to get through a couple of the traditions. So trick-or-treating, for instance, our modern, modern conception of trick-or-treating, comes from a Christian tradition of souling, which comes from a tradition of mumming. So you might have heard something like a mummer's dance. Mummers were amateur groups of actors who would go around. And so the tradition combined several cultural touchstones and superstitions, including that you offer food to whoever knocks on your door. So you don't turn away anyone empty-handed, especially on a festival day. So this protects you from demons, but it also protects you from these local mummers who would go around and enact short plays. They would sing songs. It was basically like caroling and you would call that souling or mumming and villagers would get involved. The actors would get involved. And so you passed around food, beer, mead, whatever you had, um, and you'd go house to house. And so over time it became a tradition and these little things called soul cakes were expected. So when I was doing research about this, there were a lot of instances of, I suppose you could say, modern witches or people who wanted to celebrate Samhain in a more Celtic tradition saying like, okay, we're going to make soul cakes, but this is entirely a Christian tradition. Well, okay, okay, pigeon, pigeon. You could argue that it is a survival of an older pagan tradition because I may have mentioned my master's thesis was about bread. Ooh, okay, okay. English tradition. There are some indicators that soul cakes derive from a pagan tradition originally, possibly from the Sin Eater. Do you know the Sin Eaters? Vaguely. Remind me and the rest of our listeners who are not familiar. All right. So this was an old tradition that uh, was documented in parts of England as late as the 17th century. And it was referred to there as an old pagan tradition. Okay. Where when someone dies, you bake a loaf. And in some cases, you let the loaf rise, actually lying on top of the corpse. Mm. And it's supposed to absorb the sins of the dead. And there's a like a special person in the village, the sin eater, who will eat the loaf and take the sins onto themselves so that the dead people can go to heaven or whatever. Interesting. It's like the... Um... The goat in the Hebrew tradition. There's a word for that. The scapegoat. That. Yes, yeah. thank you. The scapegoat. Yeah, there's a lot of kind of indications that this was an idea that was kind of around in Northern Europe. I'm interested. Well, I'm, I'm just interested in that because insofar as I'm familiar with sort of the pre-Christian Celtic tradition and religion, they didn't have a very big idea of remission of sin, so to speak. No. And... That's definitely a Christian corruption. Right. But here's the fun part. Okay. There was always some kind of connection between, like, bread rising and the soul. Like, because right. the, the yeast brings life to the bread. Right. In the same way the soul brings life to the body. Makes sense. And so you see a lot of kind of reflections of that in 
Scandinavian cultures, you'd have the you'd have the Erfiul, which is the funeral ale where they have mm-hmm. the bread and beer. Mm-hmm. In one of the charters for one of the earliest like peacekeeping forces in Anglo-Saxon England, they specify that if one of the members dies, everyone else has to offer a Yesufeltlaf or a loaf with schmear for their soul. <laughs> I like that. And one anthropologist who you know was 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 back in the day so it's kind of hard to uh confirm this now uh one anthropologist who looked into this a while back claimed that he had found people in i think it was somewhere in like rural northern germany who still practiced an older form of the tradition where the eating the loaf wasn't about like taking away the person's sin Mm -hmm. but the family of that person ate the loaf split up the loaf among themselves and ate it in order to retain the qualities and soul of that person in their family. That makes more sense. See, that that would click more with what I know about that tradition, the pagan tradition. Huh, that's yeah. interesting. Okay, so so the soul cakes could very well have a, a very early pagan root. Uh, but yeah, by there, the time there, you there get to the Middle hundreds Ages... Hundreds of years of corruption to get to trick-or-treating, but yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, for sure. For sure. So by, so by the time you get to the medieval period, it became soul cakes. And they sort of look like hot cross buns. I know that hot cross buns are an Easter tradition, but sort of picture a hot cross bun. And the reason I say that is because you would either cut or stamp a cross into it. Because traditionally, when you stamped loaves like that, with crosses, they were alms for the poor. So that's why soul cakes have little crosses on them traditionally. And so you would start passing those out. And so instead of the church passing out food for the poor, Halloween became a tradition where the community directly gave to the poor and also created a festival with drinking and carousing and mummers plays and things like that. So so that's sort of generally where trick-or-treating comes from. Um, there's also a Welsh and an Irish tradition. In Ireland, you'd get people who would dress up as the Llarban, which is like the white horse. And they would go house to house and recite verses. And those had a lot of pagan overtones. So you would get a lot of that. Okay, I think I've heard about this on the internet. Is this the thing where you have to rap battle a horse or he'll drink all your beer? Yes. So that's that's the Welsh tradition. It's also an Irish tradition. Yeah, you have to exchange verses with this guy dressed as a horse. With an actual horse skull. Yes, yes. This is not a paper mache thing. This is an actual horse skull that they would put on over their head and put like a sheet with it to be like a horse ghost, I guess. Mm -hmm. And you would exchange food and it would be good fortune to this, to your household to do this. So (laughs) that is also part of it. There's also the tradition of the Yule log, which we think of more as Christmas tradition, but it does have to do more with the equinox where you, you, there would be big druid bonfires traditionally, and you would take part of that fire into to your house and that's the fire that you would use to keep your house lit and warm all winter long so that's sort of where we get our yule log tradition so i know that's more of a christmas thing but it originally kind of happened around the halloween time because you would protect your house from spirits you'd protect your house from marauders you'd be providing alms to the poor and participating in a festival sort of all at this time 
So that is where trick-or-treating comes from. And then the other really interesting tradition that I wanted to get into was jack-o'-lanterns. Are you, are you familiar with the origin of the jack-o'-lantern? Vaguely. Uh, I think they're tied in with the Will of the Wisp. I know they used to be turnips or something. Mm-hmm. And someone I know is has been insisting to me recently that whoever has the most pumpkins by Halloween wins October. But I don't know if that's a real tradition or if that's just something they do. I think that's just something they do. <laughs> but, you know, you go. You get those pumpkins. Um... <laughs> But anyway, so the story of the Jack-O-Lantern is also known as the story of a stingy Jack. And I know that, I, like, I know I'm based in Ireland and apparently, like, the Anche have just given me all the lore about Ireland because I keep finding all of these stories have to come back to Ireland. And maybe that's just because Trinity has a bunch of Irish history and not anything else. But regardless... To get back to Stingy Jack. So this is apparently jack-o'-lanterns come from Ireland, which I did not know. But it's this old folk tale that is traditionally called the story of Stingy Jack. So the way the story goes, a long, long time ago, whenever that is in fairy stories, there was a guy known as Stingy Jack who would get drunk and he was basically the village idiot. He was good for nothing. And apparently the devil took notice of him and thought he was rather clever. So Satan pops up from his little hellhole and finds Jack and he's like, I want you. Like, you've got a bad reputation. You're a dreadful sinner. I'm going to take you with me. I want you to join Hell's army. (laughs) Yes. Uh, So, you know, your time has come, Jack. You've been a terrible sinner. Come with me. And Jack recognizes Satan for Satan, apparently, because he's not making any any bones about disguising himself here. And No, I'm sure he's all red with the horns and stuff. Yeah, you know, the traditional way of picturing Satan, however you want to do that. Or maybe he's the sheriff from Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? (laughs) That'd be great. Fantastic movie, by the way. Love that film. Great soundtrack, too. And the whole thing's an allegory for the Odyssey, is it not? Yeah. So With Sheriff Satan playing the role of Poseidon. Yes, that's right, Poseidon. So anyway, Jack sees Satan, recognizes him for who he is, and says, all right, all right, fine. I'll come with you, but let me have a drink first. Because he's a good Irishman, and, you know, you can't go down to hell without, you know, a drink. And so he invites Satan to come and drink with him. So they go into town, they go into the pub, they have a drink together, and Satan at this point is kind of impressed. He's like, okay, we'll put the balls on this guy for asking you to have a drink. And Jack, being known as Stingy Jack, says, okay, why don't you, Satan, show off your powers here, metamorphize into a coin, and pay for the drinks, because I don't have any money and I don't want to pay. It's my last drink. Why, you know, it should be on you. So Satan's like, all right, the ball's on this guy. So he does. So Satan, poof, turns into a silver coin, and Jack picks up the coin and puts it in his pocket, which happens to have a crucifix in it. Because he may be a dirty sinner, but he's a good Irishman, which means that he also has a crucifix in his pocket. I'm confused about Satan's problem-solving skills here, because... I feel like he should be just as capable of just conjuring up a coin out of thin air as turning into one. I know. That is the beauty of this folktale, is that Satan is an idiot. He tends to be in folktales, I've noticed this. Yeah, 
So we're continuing that trope and it only gets better from here. And so Jack will only let Satan out, he says, if he gives him 10 more years of life. And Satan says, all right, fine, I'll make that deal with you. I'll give you 10 more years. So Jack goes on his way, he gives 10 more years of life. He's thinking this is great. Satan, meanwhile, has been brooding about this. So 10 years later, he pops back up, says, hey, Jack, I'm back. And Jack says, oh, hey there, darkness, my old friend. <laughs> Good to see you again, Satan. How you doing? I'll come with you. I understand you've given me 10 extra years. Can you just, you know, grab me an apple off of this here tree? And Satan, being apparently an idiot, goes and climbs this tree to get an apple for Jack. Because apparently he's still impressed by the pluckiness of his character. So Jack, having learned from his first encounter, very quickly and very deftly carves a cross onto the tree, onto the base of the tree. So Satan can't come down until he scratches it out. I don't know why he would end up getting stuck in this tree because of a single crucifix on it, but we'll go with the holy wood of the cross and you carve a crucifix in the tree and Satan can't get down. And for some metaphysical reason, Satan's stuck in this tree. I think I've heard a version of this story, except it had been corrupted enough that it didn't really make sense anymore. <laughs> Fair like enough. it was about a blacksmith and like Jesus and St. Peter popped by his shop and ended up giving him three wishes. Oh, that's very strange. I have never heard a story like that. Yeah. And and his wishes were things like, I wish that if someone were up in this tree, I could say a magic word and they would never be able to come down again. And I wish if someone got in this bag, I could say a magic word and they could never come out again. Oh, that's very strange. And then he uses it to trick Satan. Because the reason he's such a good blacksmith is he sold his soul to Satan. And Satan comes to collect and he gets him stuck in a tree. Interesting. All right. I'll see if I can find the source for that so I can, so we can put it on the blog. Future Max speaking. The story I'm thinking of is a Norwegian folktale entitled The Smith They Dared Not Let Into Hell. When I went to look it up, I discovered it was actually apparently a fairly obscure one, at least in the English-speaking world under that title, because the only Google results for that title in quote marks are someone who is doing an independent project translating Norwegian folktales into English. Good on that guy. We'll put a link to that website on the blog. And the episode of the podcast What the Folklore, which is where I heard it from in the first place. So there you go. He's a very lucky blacksmith if he's being, you know, graced by Peter, Jesus, and Satan's presence. Well, it doesn't go well. <laughs> Fair enough. And Jesus and Peter are just as questionable as anyone else in the story. Oh dear, as folktales go. So anyway, Satan is stuck up in the street, and Jack says, I will scratch the crucifix out, and you can come down, but you have to promise that you're never going to get me in hell. And so Satan agrees to this. And so Jack goes on with his life, and when he eventually dies from his ruptured liver and excessive alcoholism. He tries to get up into heaven and being a filthy sinner, he cannot. So he goes to the gates of hell and lo and behold, Satan is waiting for him at the gates and says, no, sorry, bud, I'm keeping my promise. You're not getting into hell. So now Jack is stuck between both worlds, but Satan does give him one final gift. He flicks off a little glowing ember in front of him to light his way back to the world of in-between. And so, 
because you really don't want to have the ghost of Stingy Jack in your home, people would carve out turnips and rutabagas because they didn't have pumpkins in the old world in Europe. They would carve out turnips and rutabagas and make little faces in them and little candles in them to light the way like little embers so Jack would go past their houses when the veils were at their thinnest. And so when people came to the New World, when they came to North America and found pumpkins, they continued on the tradition and pumpkins were way easier to carve and it became a super big thing. So Mm -hmm. that is where the jack-o'-lantern comes from because it's Jack of the Lantern. That is a good story. Yeah. And again, it's much better than the folklore version <laughs> I've heard before. I think it's it's a very satisfying little story, and it, it makes sense, because he's stuck in between worlds, and you've got to, you know, keep him out of your house, and you it's nice, you see these little pumpkins, and you're like, oh, you know, we're lighting the way for this poor guy who's apparently wandering around Ireland. In the version I've heard, when he dies, he tries to go to hell first. Oh. Because he's like... Satan's my buddy, so I'll just go down there and see if he'll let me in. Great. And obviously Satan's like, no. So he's like, I guess I'll try heaven. Oh. And then the story kind of cuts out with him trying to figure out a way for him to trick his way past the gates. Oh my gosh, I don't think that's going to go well for you there, bub. So that's the story of Stingy Jack. And I kept trying to figure out whether this was like a text that was written down and carried through. But no, this is just a folk tale that eventually got written down somewhere along the line. And so that's... That's how it's recorded. So that's a couple of Halloween traditions that I wanted to cover because I think they're great. And now we can jump straight into our werewolf stories. Yes. (laughs) So generally speaking, there's two types of werewolf stories that kind of dominate Europe. There's... Here wolves and there wolves. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so there's the sort of more northern tradition and the more central Europe tradition. So the more Scandinavian tradition of werewolves are traditionally where people take on the shapings of wolves and or people who kind of inherited the ability of shapeshifting. And shapeshifting is sort of a common theme. And it's not just wolves, especially in the sagas, as, as you well know. But it sort of came into modern parlance primarily as werewolves. And if anyone wants examples of that, the Volsung saga has people wearing wolf skins, taking mm-hmm. on the shapings. And Eil saga, or Eil's saga, or Egil's saga, depending on how you want to pronounce it, some of the titular characters' ancestors were the, the like inherited kind of werewolves. Yeah, yeah. So his Eil's grandfather was Kvedulf, which is night wolf, which is to say werewolf. So he would get really grouchy at night and turn into a wolf and disappear. Also, night wolf probably sounded like a much cooler nickname before we invented emo. Yeah, that's that's so true. Aw, uh, so that's that's one tradition of werewolves, and and the name itself comes from were, Old English man and wolf, meaning wolf. So werewolf, man-wolf. And funnily enough, there's actually a tradition of what is known as werewomen, which is a self-contradiction. So it's supposed to be women who turn into wolves. But at that point... It sounds like men who turn into women. I, But you would think, but it's not. And so by the time like werewoman was in like early modern English, we'd already forgotten that were meant man in the old English. Uh, so it just, it just got turned into werewoman, which is just like a woman who shapeshifts. That would be 
a wild thing to add to the trans community. Like, people who just <laughs> supernaturally change back and forth. Okay, what is, can't the elves, mean. like, in an, in older versions of D&D, elves can do that. Can they? Yeah, in, in like, the first edition of D&D, elves could switch genders at will. I believe that. The first edition had a lot more fairy tale elements. Yeah, at least I think it's the first edition. It was one of the early, early editions of D&D. But anyway, so yeah, wear women, apparently, was also a thing. But that's anachronistic. In its own right. So that's the northern tradition, and then the more southern tradition is the more kind of scary version of a werewolf, where people are cursed with turning into wolves. And then you start getting the full moon thing and the silver thing, which has more to do with kind of the fae not reacting well to silver. Which is interesting to me because in the story of, of Stingy Jack, Satan turns into a silver coin. Well, Satan's not a fae. I know, he's not a fae. I just, it intrigues me, like, if this had more pagan traditions or had to do with the fae, then I would expect it not to be silver. But I don't know. I just thought that was interesting, so... Well, I mean, he is Satan. He's probably turning into a counterfeit coin. (laughs) That's true. That's true. So we'll just say street smarts. Know your different metals and know that silver and iron will work against the fae, but not against devils. So we'll just add that as a note. That's important. I believe that the D&D rules disagree with you, but I can't remember which one. I mean, I'm just saying this like outside of D&D. I'm just saying in in general lore, in D&D it might be different, but for in general traditional fairy lore, it's iron and silver and salt. In D&D, I I think iron iron is for either demons or devils and silver is for the other one, but I can't remember which is which. Yeah, yeah. And then in the Witcher universe, some monsters can only be dealt with with silver and not iron. So that's why the Witcher carries two swords. But regardless, so that's sort of the the two different werewolf traditions. So I'm really interested in seeing how the retold story in the Icelandic saga sort of retells the Lay of Marie de France because the Icelandic tradition has more of this benevolent werewolf tradition, but the Lay of Marie de France is coming from France, so it's more of the angry wolf that eats you tradition so with that yeah beast clover thank you he seemed like a very nice chap well yes he's the he's the exception because he's a godly christian man so with that let's jump straight into the lay of marie de france which i'm coming at you with the penguin classics tradition or edition and i do love the lay because marie kind of prefaces all of them so she begins this one with in my effort to compose lays i do not wish to omit bisclaver for such is its name in breton while the normans call it uh godwolf so werewolf essentially or man wolf in days gone by one could hear tell and indeed it was often used to happen that many men turned into werewolves and went to live in the woods that's true i've heard about that (laughs) you know just all the men the many men a werewolf is a ferocious beast which when possessed by this madness devours men causes great damage and dwells in vast forests i leave such matters for the moment for i wish to tell you about this clavier so he is very different from the traditional werewolf story of eating people. So in Brittany, there lived a baron whom I have heard 
greatly praised. He was a good and handsome knight who conducted himself nobly. He was one of his lord's closest advisors and was well loved by all his neighbors. As his wedded wife, he had a woman who was worthy and attractive in appearance. He loved her and she returned his love. So this is all very fairy tale and I should preface this by saying the Leia Marie de France are the epitome of chivalric fairy tale. Like the very traditional princess in the castle, knights in shining armor, good kings, romantic courtly love. That is what this tradition is. So that's what Marie is, is writing about here. But one thing caused her great worry. Each week he was absent for three full days without her knowing what became of him or where he went. And no one in the household knew what had happened to him. Hint, hint, full moons last for three days. Although, to be fair, I think that if I were her, my first thought would be he's cheating, not he's a wolf. Yes. Well, to be fair, it's just it's just her worrying. She doesn't necessarily know that this has anything to do with werewolves yet. One day, when he had returned home in high spirits, she questioned him. Lord. Is that lipstick on your collar? <laughs> yeah. Lord, she said, my dear sweet love, I would gladly ask you something if only I dared, but there is nothing I fear more than your anger. Which is kind of a red flag. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not a fan of that. That's not good. Mm -mm. When he heard this, he embraced her, drew her towards him and kissed her. Lady, he said, come, ask your question. There is nothing you can ask which I shall not tell you if I know the answer. In faith, she said, I'm relieved to hear this. Lord, I am so fraught with anxiety. The days that you are apart from me, my heart is so heavy and I have such fear of losing you that I shall surely die shortly from this unless I soon get help. Please tell me where you go, what becomes of you and where you stay. I think you must have a lover. And if this is so, you are doing wrong. So she's calling him out, to be fair. Man, I haven't read this story in years. I had forgotten that she actually did assume he was cheating. Yeah. But that is the natural assumption. It is. So she's like, I really love you, but if you're cheating on me, I'm going to be really upset with you here. Yeah. And he says, lady, which can I just say that it would be so cool if, you know, if you're in a relationship with someone, you called each other like lord and lady. I think only if you weren't actually Lord and Lady. Exactly. Like, if you just went around and did that. Although, to be fair, that's a little bit close to, like, Milady, so maybe not. Mm. We don't want to turn into that territory. No. All right. But anyway, Lady, he said, in God's name, have mercy on me. If I tell you this, great harm will come to me. As a result, I shall lose your love and destroy myself. When the Lady heard what he said, she thought it was no laughing matter, which... <laughs> I like that Marie specifies this because they are taking it seriously. So she questioned him repeatedly and coaxed him so persuasively that he told her his story, keeping nothing a secret. So this is generally a pretty decent relationship. Lady, I have become a werewolf. I enter the vast forest and live in the deepest part of the wood where I feed off the prey I can capture. When he had related everything to her, she asked him whether he undressed or remained clothed. That is the weirdest <laughs> possible question to ask. Like, he's like, I turn into a werewolf every month. I go out and I hunt animals for food and I live in the forest. He's like, buddy, are you, but are you naked? Like, tell me about that part. <laughs> I'm not saying she's a monster f***er, but... <laughs> I mean... So, you know, people have their tastes. <laughs> also, why 
would a wolf wear clothes? That's just such a weird question to okay, ask. Okay, but if you're, if you're, like, turning into a wolf, it's like, okay, what do you do with your clothes? Like, if you know you're going to change into a wolf, do you strip naked beforehand to preserve your clothes, or do you just, like, rip them off like the Hulk? This is the Middle Ages. Clothes are expensive. They're all handmade. Exactly. So it's, a, it's a valid, I, so it's a valid question that she's asking. I guess. Because, like, I don't know, maybe she's thinking about, like, provisions for the year. Like, oh my gosh, he's ripping all of his clothes. It's going to be so expensive for him. That's fair. That's fair. But anyway, <laughs> he says, lady. But are you naked, though? <laughs> <laughs> but, but are you? But are you? Lady, he said, I go about completely naked. <laughs> this is, like, really weird foreplay. This is just okay. very strange. <laughs> Tell me, in the name of God, where do you leave your clothes? <laughs> so now she's... <laughs> it's been so long since I read this, I forgot how weird it was. <laughs> Same. That I will not tell you, for if I lost them and were discovered in that state, I should remain forever a werewolf. See, I feel like this is another, this is another, like, relationship red flag. He's clearly thinking, like, okay, you know my secret. If this were a good relationship... They could now cooperate, and he could just, like, leave his clothing inside. Oh, yeah. Well, they're still having this, like, preliminary conversation. Right. Like, but the fact that he's hesitant to go, like, oh, I can't tell you where I keep my clothes. There's some trust issues there. There is. There are some trust issues here. No one would be able to help me, he says, until they were returned to me. That is why I do not wish this to be known. So this is like the Selkie, the Selkie myth, where mm -hmm. if you take a Selkie's skin when she turns into a human, then she can't go back to the sea. She can't go become a seal again, um, except it's this guy in his shape-shifting werewolf clothes. Lord, the lady replied to him, I love you more than the whole world. You must not hide anything from me or doubt me in any way. That would not seem like true love. What have I done wrong? What sin have I committed that you should doubt me in any way? Do tell me. You will be acting wisely. I mean, honestly, fair. I mean, sure, I guess. She tormented and harried him so much that he could not do otherwise but tell her. Lady, he said, beside the wood, near the path I follow, stands an old chapel which often serves me well. There beneath a bush is a broad stone, hollowed out in the center, in which I put my clothes until I return home. Those are gonna get all filthy. Mm-hmm. Full of worms. Ew. The lady heard this remarkable revelation, and her face became flushed with fear. She was greatly alarmed by the story, and began to consider various means of parting from him, as she no longer wished to lie with him. Okay, here's what I like about this. Mm -hmm. This happens not after he says werewolf, but after he describes hiding his clothes. So, is it that she's thinking, that is a gross thing to do with your clothes? You are a gross person. I am no longer into this. <laughs> I think it's a matter of her already scheming because she sent a messenger to summon a knight who lived in the region and who had loved her for a long time and wooed her ardently and served her generously. She had never loved him or promised him her affection, but now told him what was on her mind. Friend. So still in the friend zone here. Yeah. Friend, she said, rejoice. Without further delay, I will grant you which has tormented you. Never again will you encounter any refusal. I offer you my love and my body. Make me your mistress. Like, okay. this girl's just jumping from her one true love. And she's over here talking about true love. And then she just leaves this guy. She leaves this clavier and goes to this guy who's been in the friend zone forever. And she's like, I'll get with you now. 
He thanked her warmly and accepted her pledge, whereupon she received his oath and told him of her husband and what had become of him. She's married to this man. Mm -hmm. She described the path he took to the forest and sent him for her husband's clothes. Thus was Bisclaver betrayed and wronged by his wife. Because he was often missing, everyone thought that this time he had gone away for good. They searched and inquired for him a long while, but as no trace of him was found, they had to let the matter drop. I 100% do not get this woman's motivations because like when she thinks he's cheating on her, she's going to bring it up and and like have a discussion. But when he says, no, I'm under a curse, she's like, well, this is over now. I'm, I've got to find I someone to, to get rid of you. She's just been a hussy for a long time, I think. Well, if she were, she would, then this guy wouldn't still be in the friend zone, as you say. I mean, fair enough. I don't know. She seems like she's she's been married with him, but gets tired of him going away and thinks that he's cheating on her, but then gets scared of him because he turns into a werewolf, which, to be fair, is a terrifying thing to learn. Yeah, but I mean, isn't that the better case scenario? At least he's faithful and he's not endangering her yeah. when, when he's a werewolf because he goes out in the woods. Right. Yeah, but you're still married to a monster. Which, in chivalric terms, like, is the worst thing for your courtly reputation. Only if you tell people. <laughs> true, true. Yeah, she's, I'm, she's I'm not saying, a great lady. I'm just saying, this is some anti-werewolf bias. It is, it completely I'm is. I'm, I'm with you on this one. So anyway, she marries this other guy. Because she's like, well, my husband is uh, conveniently dead now. Which, you know, she set up in the first place. Mm -hmm. So, a whole year passed until one day the king went hunting and headed straight for the forest in which Bisclaver was living. When the hounds were unleashed, they came upon Bisclaver and the dogs and hunters spent the whole day in pursuit until they were just about to capture him, tear him to pieces, and destroy him. As soon as Since he... when do dogs hunt wolves? That was my question. It's like the fox and the hound, except now it's a wolf. Yeah, I feel like wolves are not usually the target of hunts. True, but this is a lone wolf. Wolves usually go in packs, and if you see one lone wolf, you might as well go for it. A lone wolf is a weak wolf. You're not going to eat it. That's true. No one eats wolf. Yeah, but the king, like the king is a trophy hunter. Anyway, as soon as he saw the king, he ran up to him and begged for mercy. So, <laughs> yeah, this wolf is uh, running up to the king. So he took hold of his stirrup and kissed his foot and his leg. The king saw him and was filled with dread, obviously, because a wolf is running at him. He summoned all his companions. But, like, he's licking him. I feel like that's pretty clear. Yes. Which apparently wolves do. I've seen pictures of, oh, like, yeah. wolves in, in national parks. Yeah. And the park rangers who care for them, apparently they're, there's a very dog-like bond. Yes, Sometimes. they're just big, they're big dogs, big wild dogs. Lords, he said, come forward, see the marvelous way this beast humbles himself before me. It has the intelligence of a human and is pleading for mercy. Drive back all the dogs and see that no one strikes it. The beast possesses understanding and intelligence. Hurry, let us depart. I shall place the creature under my protection, for I shall hunt no more today. The king then left with Bisclaver following him. He kept very close to the king, as he did not want to be separated from him and had no wish to abandon him. The king, who took him straight into the castle, was delighted and overjoyed at what had happened, for never before had he seen such a thing. Yes, I would be very surprised as well. I'd be thrilled, pet wolf. Yeah, 
you know, might as well. He considered the wolf to be a great wonder and loved it dearly, commanding all his people to guard it well for love of him and not do it any harm. None of them was to strike it, and plenty of food and water must be provided for it. His men were happy to look after the creature, and each day it would sleep amongst the knights, just by the king. Wherever the king might go, it was never wanted to be left behind. It accompanied him constantly and showed clearly that it loved him. Now, hear what happened next. The king held court, and all his barons and those who held fiefs from him were summoned so that they could help him celebrate the festival and serve him all the better. Amongst them, richly and elegantly attired, was the knight who'd married Bisclavere's wife. He did not realize and would never have suspected that Bisclavere was so close by, obviously. So soon as he arrived at the palace, Bisclavere caught sight of the knight and sped towards him, sinking his teeth into him and dragging him down towards him. He would soon have done the knight serious harm if the king had not called him and threatened him with a stick. On two occasions that day, he attempted to bite him. <laughs> so the wolf suddenly goes feral over this one guy, which if you've ever owned a dog, if your dog gets a bad feeling about somebody, you generally pay attention, especially if your dog is good natured. Yeah, that's true. So you do pay attention. And so everyone does actually pay attention in the court and they all realize that the knight had wronged him somehow and he was bent on revenge. 100% if my dog decided she didn't like someone, I would assume she had a point. Oh yeah, absolutely. So the knight whom Bisclavere attacked was the very first one to leave after the festival. No wonder Bisclavere hated him, says Marie. <laughs> I would think he'd be the first one to leave because a wolf keeps attacking him. Yeah, no kidding. This is not a fun party. <laughs> Not long afterwards, as I understand it, the king, who was wise and courtly, went into the forest where Bisclavere had been discovered. Bisclavere accompanied him, and on the way home that night, the king took lodging in that region. Bisclavere's wife learnt of this, and dressing herself elegantly, went the next day to speak to the king, taking an expensive present for him, as you do when you go see the king. When Bisclavere saw her approach, no one could restrain him. He dashed towards her like a madman. Just hear how successfully he took his revenge. So Marie's like really into this. He tore the nose right off her face. What worse punishment could he have inflicted on her? From all sides he was threatened and was on the point of being torn to pieces when a wise man said to the king, Lord, listen to me. This beast has lived with you, and every single one of us has seen him over a long period, and has been with him in close quarters. Never once has he touched a soul or committed a hostile act, except against this lady here. Apparently he wasn't there for the, the mauling at the festival. But by the faith I owe you, he has some grudge against her, and also against her husband. She has been the okay, so wife. Was there. She is the wife of the knight you used to love so dearly, and who has been missing for a long time without knowing what became of him. Question that lady here to see if she will tell you why the beast hates her. Make her tell you if she knows. We have witnessed many marvels happening in Brittany. The king accepted if his she advice. Knows. Because <laughs> she knows. She, well, she's missing that now. Also, I like that he's like, maybe we should ask her some questions while she's like missing her nose. Oh no, it gets worse. Holding the knight, he took the lady away and subjected her to torture. Pain and fear. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot that was there. <laughs> they just slipped that one in there. Yeah, so you know, torturing her. That's great. Um... 
Pain and fear combined made her reveal everything about her husband, how she had betrayed him and taken his clothes, about his account of what had happened and what became of him and where he went. Since his clothes had been taken, he had not been seen in the region. She was quite convinced that the beast was Bisclaver. Er, the king asked her for the clothes and whether she'd liked it or not, made her bring them and return them to Bisclaver. When they were placed before him, Bisclaver took no notice of them. The man who gave the advice earlier called to the king, Lord, you are not acting properly. Nothing would induce him to put on his clothing in front of you or change his animal form. You do not realize the importance of this. It is most humiliating for him. Take him into your bedchamber and bring him the clothes. Let us leave him there for a while and we shall soon see if he turns into a man. That part I remember. Entirely reasonable. I like that like modesty comes up. It's like, no, look, you can't have him turn back into a person <laughs> and get dressed in front of you. He needs his privacy. Yeah, you know, I mean chivalric virtue this man has been a good knight to the king this entire time he's not about to just spread everything in front of the king like no no that i mean this is before pajamas were invented yeah i feel like there would be less modesty going around not in chivalric tradition though so the king himself led the way and closed all the doors on the wolf after a while he returned taking two barons with him all three entered the room. They found the knight sleeping on the king's own bed. The king ran forward to embrace him and kissed him many times. It was not long before he restored his land to him and he gave him more than I can tell and banished the woman from the country, exiling her from the region. So not only does she have no nose and has been tortured, she is also now exiled. <laughs> and the man for whom she betrayed her husband went with her. She had a good many children, who were thereafter recognizable by their appearance. Many of the women in the family, I tell you truly, were born without noses and lived noseless, because apparently that's an inheritable trait. <laughs> hey, Lamarck said so. I guess so. The adventure you have heard actually took place. Do not doubt it. The lay was composed about Bisclaver to be remembered forevermore. So there you go. That is that is Bisclaver by Marie. Short, sweet, and entirely entertaining. So now we're going to jump into the Icelandic saga, which I have not read. So this is going to be new for both of us. It's from a working paper, which is done by Alaric Hall and others. And Alaric has a fantastic book on elves as well. So I really like his work. So I'm very excited to read this translation. But first, tea. Okay. There was once a knight called Tiedel, who lived in a city that is called Sare. He was married. His wife is not named here, but she was of all women the most hard-hearted, fierce, and unmindful of good deeds, grasping and loving of the world's sinful existence, and despising the eternal wealth and glory of the heavenly kingdom, as will be shown in this tale. Is the sentence, his wife is not named here, part of the text or part of the translator's notes? No, that is part of the text. You can make up a name, guy. But but that would be inaccurate to the to the original material. <laughs> Which Fair. you know, like we're changing the name already of from yeah, Clavet exactly. to Tiedel, but you know, they're already making this note. So anyway, her husband had for her the greatest affection, which the Lord had granted and given him, and he knew how well to handle her. In addition, he had studied all seven liberal arts, and how to count and calculate numbers large and small. It also says he was like Samson in strength, like Absalom in beauty, Solomon in wisdom, and Aristotle in joy. Which I've Good never heard joy. before. Yeah, in joy. Hmm. 
Maybe because of, you know, the poetry, the poetics. I guess. Anyway, I have not heard Aristotle as being incredibly joyful, but that's something new. Also, that is a lot of credentials you've just given this guy. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The scientific skills were incalculated into his heart, and he'd studied all their branches and roots. What more is there to say that his life was, in all things, at the peak of worldly flourishing, which God had wrought and lent him? So this is very clearly a post-conversion story. This is mm-hmm. even much more Christian than even Marie, and she's already writing in a very Christian era. He traveled through various kingdoms and all lands to test his prowess and pride. Wherever he went, he was the most famous knight. But here we only discuss one thing, that he dwelt with his wife in a particular kingdom. He was put in charge of 12,000 knights, walking, moreover, alongside the king himself, both outdoors and in. So again, like, a lot of credentials here. Mm -hmm. But although this man had everything going for him, he had one great flaw in his situation, which seems strange to everyone that he would disappear from the king's retinue for two days at a time, so that no one knew what had happened to him. The king, his court, and also his wife marveled at this, and she felt such sorrow and grief that she could not, on account of the love for which she pretended to have for her husband whatever happened, cope with him not coming home for that whole period, as was mentioned above. Now, people had no idea what might have become of him, but after the aforementioned time, Sir Tiedel would come home and everyone was pleased to see him. Now, when some time had passed this way, Sir Tiedel hurried home to Sare, his kingdom, to find his lady, and when he came there, she now goes before her lord and husband, entreating him with worldly treasures and loving kisses, kissing him joyfully yet in her heart, plotting how she might brew for him the shadow of death, of which she had for him a treacherous desire, and for which she had plumed the depths of her wicked heart, opening her speech and beginning thus. What causes you, my most passionately beloved, to disappear now for two or three days every week out into the woods and the wilderness? Every week? Apparently, like, we're changing this. So first off, first off, she, like, the story is in its wonderful Icelandic traditional way, not giving you any plot twist here. Like, they just straight out are like, no, 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 she hates this guy. But yeah, it's two or three days every week, not every month. That's a lot. (laughs) Yeah, that is half Also, the I'm week. surprised the Icelandic version is more flowery than the Breton version. I know, me too. Let's see. Yes. Indeed, no one knows what happens to you, and it's hard enough for one woman to have to defend a leaderless kingdom, not to mention missing all the love for which you ought to grant me in bed, which female people love best and miss most in some if something delays it. Like, wow, okay. I mean, <laughs> you know, good for her. Yeah. Yeah, there is no field or fruit of the orchard in the world that doesn't need some dew and moisture if the heat is too fierce. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. And so this is now fermenting sorrow in my heart with terrible suffering that I am burning up from great sorrow that I have on your account, my dear lord. Therefore, I request for you to tell me what becomes of you at the aforementioned time when you disappear giving him mugs and pots full of drink, laying her arms around his neck and gently kissing him, giving him all her pleasure. So she's getting him pretty well drunk and satisfied here. Now he speaks to her, my dear sweetheart, strange things that have not happened are not planning to slay you or kill you. And there's a footnote here that says it's difficult to make sense out of out of what this means, but the implications are you don't have to kill yourself over things that haven't happened. 
or don't think about this too much or you're going to kill yourself with worry. Like, don't, don't worry yourself to death, essentially, is what this says. Push away evil thoughts and have a joyous heart, which will not harm me, for I travel late, coming home to the kingdom with birds and animals. Darkness comes then upon me in the forest, and I wander about the wilderness, but when the darkness passes, then my ski journey is so swift that I slide back home in one day. Now I have told you the truth of this matter, my love. I feel like he left out some key details. Yeah, he he did. I, I do like this idea that he's skiing, though. That's a great addition to this story. That's not uncommon in Scandinavia. No, no. Actually, it might indicate that he's in some way associated with the more... What's the word I'm looking for? The more other parts of the population, because that's something that you get in uh, Finland and Lapland. Future Mac here. What I'm thinking of there is a line in the Graugas, the Icelandic law code, where they use the phrase as long as the lap skis in a group of other phrases that essentially mean forever. The people that medieval Scandinavians referred to as laps or fins are the people whom we now call the Sami, and they are very possibly the people who have been skiing the longest. They are also associated with, in the sagas at least, shamanic magic and occasionally shape-changing. So it's possible that having him ski is a way to tie our hero here to the Sami. Anyway, she said, Now I see that you want to deprive me of your love and take other women in your arms and disdain me and so grant your love to other women. Now I am wretched. I am taking this hard and I shall swiftly die. Pitiful was my father. Sorrowful was my mother to give me into the arms of such a wretched husband. Hey, hey, ho, ho. Woeful is now the death which befalls him. With these words and many others, she collapses into total unconsciousness. But her lord, ripping clear water between her lips, as he knew well to do in the very gentlest way, now accuses himself and his conscience for hiding these things which she wanted to know from him. He bears- This woman is way over dramatic <laughs> and also hey, hey, ho, ho. That's what it says. Um, hang on. Yeah, the, uh, the original Icelandic literally says, hey, hey, ho, ho, harthur enur dathin than sem han yfridetur. That is, that is okay. what the line says. It's got hey, hey, ho, ho in it. So now he's really upset about all of this and tries to re-explain all of this to her and says to her, are you, are you here, my beloved? Or that's what she says, because she apparently wakes up from having passed out with grief. And he says, yes, my lady, he said, I'll gladly explain to you what you have been curious about. And she says, I'm then filled with joy. So she's just like really back and forth on her emotions here. She is playing with his emotions and this is highly dramatic. He then resumes his speech in the same manner. I go to the forest and I change shape. I go from my clothes into the skin of a slim bear and other creatures. I eat their flesh and take in my existence all things according to their nature. But I am the most powerful of them because my human wisdom and virtue. But still, here in the deserted forest lies a small house and there my clothes lie stored. So that's different. Like, he turns into a bear and other creatures, so this incorporates yeah. the northern tradition of skin changing. It also seems to indicate that maybe it's not a curse, it's just something he does. Yeah, which is very interesting. 
Now that he has told her his story, she grows joyful in her heart and thinks to herself how she might most fully get to understand this and talks with him in these words. It would make me feel better if I kept your clothes. Which, you know, makes sense if she weren't a horrible scheming woman already. Right, that's exactly what I was saying in the last one. If it were a healthy relationship, that would be the reasonable outcome is leave your clothes at home. Right. And so he replied, I trust you sufficiently well, my lady, and certainly can rely on you not to betray me. You see, people do talk, and few can keep a secret, so I ask you, for God's sake, not to betray me. Now she tears at her hair and claws at her clothes. She said she would not be so sinful as to kill her own lord. Then he says to her, Now you must go with me into the forest and see that little room which I inhabit. She embraces this him to herself. This is also clearly before we invented psychiatry, because this woman <laughs> needs help. <laughs> she really does need help. She embraces him to herself with hunt with the honeycomb of her lips, which brightened him up entirely. And just as when the green grass grows where the ground thaws on account of her falsehood, as has often been borne out. So this we're saying here, like the permafrost is still there. She still has a really cold heart. He shows her his clothes and asks her never to take them away from there. He says that it would be his death if he loses them. And in whatever animal form I am, when I come away from the woods, then I will have to remain all my days in this animal's skin for as long as I live. Which is pretty standard for skin-changing magic. Yeah. Because in the in the Volsunga saga, they, they get stuck in the in this clothes for, I think, ten days, right? I don't know, it's been a few years. I at some at remember. some point they get stuck. I think at some oh point they get stuck. Future Zoe here. So I was trying to think of the section in the Volsunga saga where our two main characters, Sigmund and Sinfjolfi, get stuck in their werewolf shapings. And that section shows a caveat where they can turn into werewolves, but the wolf skins have a curse wherein only every tenth day can they get in or out of the skins. Now she returns home to her chamber, and when some time had passed, Tiadel hurried to a meeting with the king, and to be with him for a good while in good favor. He is eager to prove all his learning according to his habit. But when his wife perceived this, she wrote a letter to him. They totally switched tenses here. Oh yeah, Old Icelandic does that all the time. Okay. They have no respect for tense. Well, that makes sense, because now it is in present tense, and then it jumps back into past tense, so I'm going to try and keep this consistent. It's, it's one of the things that's been the most difficult in uh, the translation class I'm doing with Dr. Hughes, is the tense switches, like, between sentences. That's or horrific. in the middle of sentences, all the time. Ugh. It's like, Bob said, and then Joe answers. Ugh. Ugh. Okay, so... Tiedel's off with the king, and when his wife perceived this, she wrote a letter to one count whom she had loved and who had lain with her for ten years. So she's already been with this man, and calls yeah, yeah and calls him to her and asks to play a trick which she desired. She told him everything that was for her most incautious. She eagerly wished hell and death upon her husband because he now has taken the shape of a beast which is contrary to human nature she said to him now we must go into the forest and take the clothes of that evil robber who i've been married to for a long time i mean at least she has a clearer motivation than the other one. Oh yeah that's true and he said, so this guy says, that he doesn't have the courage to do it because of all the accomplishments and power of Tiadel. Death is therefore certain if he becomes aware of this kind of plot. So again, that's much more Icelandic of them. 
in terms mm-hmm. of like, yeah, but if he if he finds out, he's gonna kill me, which you wouldn't expect to have happened in the Biscalvare story. Yeah, it's not. It doesn't fit into the chivalric tradition, Mm-mm. but it Mm-mm. very much fits into the saga tradition. Yes, exactly. She replies, "You can believe it that I have never advised this before now, and be fearless, and don't allow your thoughts to frighten you, and take his clothes away because he is now coming to a wolf's skin." Then she took his hand and led him into the forest and into the same room as was mentioned before, taking her lord's scarlet clothes and saying, I want to give you these, my sweetheart. No, my lady, I do not want to carry them, and instead I will carry them out of here and into the river, so they may never be found. I think he who wears them will be worse off than anyone except for the lord himself. She replies, You are a great coward. You do not have the courage to wear the clothes of a dead slave and would prefer to cast aside such fine raiment, the likes of which no one has ever seen. I shall keep them until 12 months have passed and you drink your marriage to me. So now they end their discussion and each go home to their own chamber. She does have a point. Scarlet dye is very expensive. So it is, those, are, those it is. are fancy clothes. That's very, very true. I just love how this also falls into the tradition of colds a woman's counsel mm-hmm. in terms of the guy not wanting to do this thing and in this case being right about it. But the woman calls him a coward. So he sort of is forced to be part of this anyway. So three days passed from when Tiadel was expected to return home. This astonished the entire country's inhabitants. Many immediately became grief-stricken, and the king just as much as his courtiers at home and beyond. So he's just really well-loved. Yeah, I feel like the general population of this region is overly invested in this one person. I guess so. But, they, you know, they start searching for him. And it is sad now to hear and recount how tragically life went for that good man and how harshly his wife treated him. And blessed is he who gets a good fiancé, as they say, there's often a giantess in enchanting skin, and likewise that many hide themselves for a long time. This is the case for Tiedel's wife. So... Basically, like, maybe your wife's a giantess, which is not a good thing. Yeah. Which I really like as a, as a gnomic saying. That's a great one. There is often one, yeah. giantess in enchanting skin. But he used that in D&D. That's a great one. I was going to say, that's one for the dictionary. Definitely. But things proceed somewhat quietly, according to the king's order. So her sorrow should not be huge. But when she heard the king of his last gasp and death, she threw herself down so that no one knew if she would live or not. And then she woke up and said, Poor me, I am so wretched. My sickness is painful. My death is mournful. Sad is this wretched world. When someone thinks life is most amusing to live, then everything is snatched away in their time of happiness. When they that everything is at its most fine and dandy, then it turns black and deceitful. I'm sorry, did you say fine and dandy? Yes. (laughs) I love this translator. It's great. If the wheel of the world revolves as can happen, the person gets trouble for that from which they had got happiness. However, in her heart and her mind, she now grew happy in many ways. So she's making this big show of being extraordinarily distraught, and she's just like, (laughs) I killed my husband. So this horrible woman, this is like, this is more dramatic than than Shakespeare. I would say overly dramatic completely so she presents herself as coping the worst possible with the aforementioned sorrow more than anybody can reckon but the old saying proves true that most grows old that has passed by and likewise that other people's prayers have great power and especially through the intercession of a king and queen so a little bit more gnomic wisdom for you 
Is that is that whole thing an old saying? That I, seems long for a saying. I know. I think it's ma- mostly that most grows old that passes by. So yeah. it's like you're wailing and screaming about this, but you've been doing it for six months. Like, you can stop now. Now the betrayals of the aforementioned woman eventuated. She married the Count whom she had pledged her trust, and drank his wedding with her. There was the greatest joy and gladness there. It is not necessary to go on about it, except to say that nobles were led away with the best of gifts, and that she had received her greatest joy, which she had long demanded of the world. (laughs) Did you say long demanded of the world? (laughs) Yes. That's a good turn of phrase. I like it. I I like what it says about her character. Yeah, it's, yeah. She's a pushy woman. Uh, we leave them now to their luxury living and move to Tiadel in his mortal danger. So I love this, like, wonderful transition here. I mean, that's also saga saga tradition is that you oh, say, yeah. like, we're going we're to talk about this now. Or yes. if someone leaves and they don't come back in the story, the author will just say, they're out of the story now. Yeah, exactly. We don't have to worry about them. One day it happened that the king rode out in the wood with all his retinue, and as soon as the king had drawn his bow, he saw a big polar bear and greatly desired the beast, and shot four or five times, and missed the beast each time. And the king grew very angry, and put his best arrows to the bow. And when the animal perceived the anger of the king, it ran to meet him with as much fear and dread as a living and breathing person, and laid its paw on the king's knee, and went home to the palace of the king. And it was in He's every a polar bear in this version. That's amazing. <laughs> He's a polar bear. Like I don't know how he went from wolf to polar bear, but this is so much cooler. <laughs> I mean, there are a lot of uh, Scandinavian stories about kings having pet polar bears That's for true. various reasons. That's true. I think we read one in the Vikings. Li- yeah, lit we class did. We he was he was supposed to be like extraordinarily lucky. That guy. Yeah. Yeah, and he, and he ended up getting a polar bear. So anyway. He goes He goes home with the king. The next thing that happened was that the king put out an invitation to all and sundry and invited a large crowd of people there. And while the palace was occupied uh, with the best men, the beast sees one knight and recognizes him as his enemy and runs... Wait, 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 wait. So is this like a festival for an occasion or is this just a come see my bear? It doesn't say. Like neither, neither story says what the festival is for. It's just a big feast. Okay. Yeah. And so he runs at him and tore apart all of his clothes. And when the knight had received this dishonor, he turned around to leave and never came back. And the king was so angry, he asked his court to kill the beast. But when the polar bear understood the king's rage, it exhibited great mildness and begged for clemency by indicating with his eyes. So he doesn't bite him in this story. He just rips off his enemy's clothes. This king is also less understanding than the other king. Very true. But... He is a Viking king. Mm. So now the men began to grow merry from drinking beer, and no more was any attention given to this. And now twelve months passed with nothing newsworthy taking place. And so this goes on for some time until one day the king goes into the forest with all his followers to hunt animals and birds. And so they had long hunted when night came, and they lost their way about the desert and narrow forest and arrived in Syria, where he had previously identified the queen. Wait. Back up, like, 40 steps. What? (laughs) (laughs) They got lost and arrived in Syria? Apparently. So... Where were they starting from? (laughs) I don't know, but apparently they're bringing a polar bear with them. (laughs) What is this story? But anyway, this woman now is 
apparently a queen in Syria. So what? I'm guessing this is like a crusading thing. I don't know. Like it doesn't say. It's just that's what it is. Wait, wait. Is this this woman is Diodel's wife? Yes. Yes. I thought she married a count. But apparently she's a queen now. Okay. That's what it says. Drovnik. That's I mean that's that is the word for queen. So there you go. Anyway, they're in Syria now, and the king followed that same animal which had which he had followed before. There was also a great preparation on account of the power of ale and good cheer and other things, along with halls. That's of how they ended up in Syria. They're really <laughs> drunk. <laughs> they were really, really drunk. And so they're yeah, they're in Syria. And anyway, on account of her status, the queen had not entered the hall until the feast was underway. Then the queen entered the hall with seventy handmaids. Two counts led her, and moreover, they were quickly abetted by all kinds of musical instruments. And when the queen came to the middle of the hall floor, when Theodel was in his animal form, recognizing his wife and how hugely she had deceived him, he leapt up with such awesome ferocity that those who walked with the queen retreated to the bench. And it had her under it, meaning the bear, so the bear jumps on her, and tore apart all her clothes, and so her nose, and scratched her flesh all over. The queen was very angry at this indignity which she had suffered, and most of all because the animal was not killed. The king now becomes profoundly angry, and commanded the animal to be killed, but no one could get a hold of it before it came before the king, and it fell down and begged for mercy, and tears fell from its eyes, but the king did not want to be softened. Then one knight got up from his seat and went before his lord and master. Sire, he said, would you be so good as to attend my speech regarding the words which I would like to speak to your majesty? Things seldom... So, but <laughs> that's an unnecessary string of words there. <laughs> it is, but it's formal. <laughs> that's true. Things seldom heard of have happened here. First, you lost your best knight twice in twelve months ago. And second, you have received a certain polar bear that seems to you of great wisdom in all things and has done no one any harm during the aforesaid period except for the count whom Theodel's lady married, and now to the lady herself, the greatest disgrace. Not everyone has equally great knowledge if even they have studied all the liberal arts and have minutely researched them through and through, and many people who have been knowledgeable in good magic have also changed their form. Here, one night has disappeared. It could be that those things have happened here, but he pursues this art can never get out of the creature's form if his clothes are taken. So this guy's like, he's studied magic. I know where this is going. Like, he's put the pieces together. Yeah, yeah, this is someone who understands supernatural process yeah. here. Like, yeah, exactly. And, it, and he clearly understands that this isn't a curse. This is like part of the liberal, like part of the magic arts and the liberal arts. Yeah, I, I do like that Tiadel apparently does this on purpose in yeah. this version. He's not under a curse. He just likes to be a bear sometimes. I totally understand that. Man, yeah. how come magic was taken out of our liberal arts curriculum? I know, right? Ugh, shameful what's been done be in academia these days. Okay, there was now a great applause at his speech, but the king grew rather angry because he gave advice that the king did not know about, and so should give evidence for his case or lose his life. The next what? thing happened was that the knight was brought in from the front of the king. He began his council with the court sitting right alongside, with the queen sitting there. Seldom heard of things have taken place regarding this good knight, and the animal which here has done particular injury. It was known to you that Teodel disappeared for two or three days at a time. I believe that it would have gone like this, that while Teodel was practicing his art, his clothes were taken. I believe that no one did this other than his wife. So he's got his little, like, 
Sherlock Holmes moment. That's exactly what I was thinking. Like, he sounds <laughs> like he's, like, puffing on a pipe and going out, you see, Watson. Yes, exactly. So he's like, let me, let me state my case here. And so he does. His speech was applauded a lot, apart from by his enemies and the lady's friends. They said that he was worth the most shameful death, but he paid no attention to them. <laughs> All right, great. I like that that's put in there. He said to the king that no one had taken Teodel's clothes except his wife and asked the king to go and constrain her with many commands. It seems strange to the people that the king must go so very far according to one's person's speech. I thought she was the queen of Syria. Why did she have to listen to him? I don't know. The king had led the lady aside for a private conversation and asked whether she knew nothing of the clothes and her husband Teodel. But she said, Far from it, saying that this evil fool serves ugly lies with a false mouth, and that you should stoop so far beneath your rank as to believe one idiot. The king replied that it would just have to be that way. He had her... <laughs> I love how we're, we're going from like this very high formal language to, well, it's just gonna have to be this way, isn't it? I mean, I'm sure that is like a pretty good approximation. Oh, for sure. I like this translator. It's fantastic. He had her taken and had scared her with many tortures. But though her transgression was great, she still wished to spare her evil body. She said then about the clothes, that she had thrown them into the river where her husband had left them behind. Then the knight told the king that she would have stored his clothes wherever they had sunk down. This wretched being was frightened further into other stories, scared of more tortures. It turns out it was as she had said, that treachery becomes clear in time, though it dives down deep. She pointed out the clothes to the king and goes with him and opens one chest and took from there all the knight's clothes. Then the knight became very happy and thus said to the king and all the people, see now this wretched creature is how cruelly she has betrayed her husband, and he declared that it was her wedded husband that is lying at the king's feet. Everyone was impressed by his wisdom and surprising acuity, as will be proven below. The animal went most often wherever the aforementioned knight went. It was fierce to all those who protested against the knight. The king did not know what he ought to do until the knight came in with his advice. The king took up all the knight's fine clothes and carried them to where the animal was and laid them down there. People were now very curious to see what the animal would turn back into or whether he would retain the same animal form that the man had parted with. But when the animal saw the finery, it did not want to have anything to do with it or to get involved with it. Then the king became deeply angry and commanded that this impudent fool be seized who was going about making a spectacle of himself in unheard of monstrosities since no one had heard of anyone who would be such a long time in an animal's form or would have such power of transformation but not change back. So the knight was seized and led to prison. <laughs> what? <laughs> He's checked in prison. Also, if they're going to do the modesty thing, that applies even less in Iceland than it would in medieval France. I know. I know. And it doesn't it doesn't say anything to do with modesty yet. But here we go. The next turn of events that is the cruelest beast speaks thus to the king. Please be so good. Oh, oh, this is the cruelest beast is referring to uh, the woman. Of please course. be of yes, course. please be so good to have that contemptible peasant killed rather than obeying his evil slander. Consider what calamities I have been faced with that this evil traitor has slandered me with that the evil deceitfulness that this wicked fool carries with his lying mouth that I would be so hard in my breast and my 
heart as to kill my own husband, when he had the greatest wisdom over other men, and when I would gladly buy his life back with cities and castles and give my own life for his. It would now be better for you to have that traitor killed than to obey him. Many now came over to her side and wanted to kill that good knight. So she's just as much of a drama queen as always. And yes, when this, clearly. Yeah, when this good man perceived his imminent death, he asked the king not to enact his execution so suddenly before he had spoken some words that he felt necessary. He said that if the king wanted to have this done, his life would always be just available for the taking upon the petition that the king began to speak thus. You are a bold dog for daring to challenge me for the evil deeds which you have accused this powerful woman who rules here in Syria, and so with so many empty words. <laughs> so she is well, like- forgotten that she was queen of Syria. So she's queen of Syria at this point. You would deserve the worst death and torment. Also, the animal does not want to look at the fine clothes. You have, in that way, led all these people's judgment into error with your long deception. As the king finished his speech, the knight began speaking himself. Lord King, from you, I am more often given harsh words with rashness than wisdom and science. Those books which are about the creation of the world have maintained that two people were created by Almighty God, sinless and paradise adam and eve is he just gonna filibuster now he's just gonna <laughs> like recite the bible i guess and they were created such that they were not ashamed to stand naked and they neither hid their joints nor limbs let alone their eyes yet after the fall they were ashamed to stand naked it is possible that it might be the same thing here the beast may be ashamed to exhibit himself to many people take the animal and put it in one room with all the fine dress of the night and no worldly person with him and allow nobody to come to him until three hours from now and i shall go in first with the king and if he has not changed this way, as I have said, then I am more deserving of death than life. So he's he's staking his life on this. So it was done as he asked, and the room was strongly locked. Now, when it came about that the wretched being protests still, saying, please, Lord, kill dead this harsh traitor, rather than obeying him again. I keep forgetting the wretched beast <laughs> is the woman and not the bear. Yeah, so she's still protesting, and the king answers that there would not be long to wait for if no new I'm event gonna. happens on this day. Yeah, he's like, chill out. Ugh. It's queen of Syria, man. Then she said, now I see that you do a favor more for one beggar than for me. I never thought, you wretched world, that you would be so treacherous. Woe to you. No one should trust the least thing from you. When it's going best for a person, they are at the peak of their happiness. You come black and deceitful with poison-bearing stings and your real sharp spikes looking around yourself in all directions to see how you will most and most disgracefully fall from all honor, tumbling them from step to step, not considering those earlier days when one person enjoyed the whole world's good fortune, but procuring at once misfortune and accusation, sickness and sorrows, you have now, wretched world, got your desire. This, like, this lady is I just... I know. It, she's all her meds. <laughs> she's really... Ooh. She gave the world many other further and more rebukes than is written here. So she's just cursing the world at this point which I'm highly impressed by. So, also... so, so the, while this is going on, she's just like generally screaming at the universe. 
I guess. It also says that she pondered so much that she would see her Lord Teodel that she did not know any torture which she would not want to be tormented with, and it troubled her so much that even if she had seen down into open hell torment and seen her sins written up there and that she must burn there, that she would have chosen that for herself, like over overseeing her husband again. Hereby, she sought to kill herself, and that could not be done because she had to live with this world-famous shame and scandal in front of human eyes, but after death go down into eternal torment unless she had done right and could demonstrate repentance. Hold on. She already got her nose bitten off, right? So all this is going on while she's missing her nose? Yes. This is amazing. That really makes the image better. Oh my gosh. She's just screaming, there's blood pouring down her face. The next thing to tell is that when the king unlocked the room, many people went with the king in the night, and there was great curiosity about what would happen. And as the king walked into the room to look around, he saw where a man was lying, handsome and peaceful in the bed. The king recognized his friend Teodel, and on the other side of the room was an ugly skin with malodor and stench, which is the traditional skin of the polar bear. Which, the, the, what do they call it? The shaping, I think, that they turn into. The king walked to the bed and prodded him. <laughs> he's just, he's poking him. Uh, Not no. the skin, him. Yeah, he's he, yeah he's poking Teodel. And now the night Teodel awakened and looked at the king in the court. He went over oh, he to asleep. the Okay, that makes so much more sense. Yes, he went over to the knight and greeted him affectionately. Teodel said he had gotten his life back along with his skills and wisdom. Hereby, he gave him so much gold and silver that it was impossible to weigh. Then Teodel spoke to the king, and he said that he will never be in his court unless this man, his lifesaver, should be alongside him in all honors. And the king said that it would be so. Then the king requested that it's now calling him King Teodel. Because apparently he's promotions. Okay, but apparently, because his wife is the queen of Syria, so that makes him the king of Syria. So I guess. The, yeah. So the king requested that King Teodel should make peace with his wife, but he said he never wanted her in his sight again. He declared her ugly and loathed. They could send her away I mean, to other distant lands. It's your fault. You bit off her nose. I mean, yes, but after everything that she's done, she kind of deserved it. Well, I mean, she can be loathed, but it's her—it's his fault she's ugly. True. True. They could send her away to other distant lands and kingdoms, and her evil tramp, too. <laughs> <laughs> the Count is an evil tramp? That's amazing. Yeah, I love it. And he declared her not to be so bold as to ask for either goods or farmsteads, peace nor renown, wealth nor love. He declared that the worst should come of her on account of her betrayal and her plotting. So she was sent away with her servants and items, goods and treasures, company and entourage. But it can be said of her that all of her children were born noseless. Therefore, it can be seen how God was angry with her. The end. You know, I think French Mary is a better storyteller than this, but that was amazing. It was amazing. Oh, wow. So there we go. So there are two werewolf stories for Halloween. So I guess we can go through and go through our segments and rate them. Yep. Yep. Okay. What say you? I'll let you start with this one. That's a tough one because every part of the dialogue in that second story was insane just so bizarre i you know i'm just gonna go with like any one of her general rants like the one where she's ranting at the world yeah because it's Blood just streaming so... down her face just screaming at everyone and everything it's so over the top yeah oh man 
she's just so angry at the world that she just curses the entire world. I do like the reference to like the, the wheel of fate and the world's turning. And she refers to it as like the rack with spikes. Yeah, I think that was the best part where she's where she talked about the king being like coming and bringing sorrow and the Oh no, that wasn't the, the king. That was the world. The world was coming and bringing the, sorrow. Yeah, yeah. Even better. Yeah. Yes. No, that's definitely the best one. Definitely the best. Oh man. Bestiary. Beast Clover and Tiadel are both werewolves. Yeah. Well, werewolves and a werebear. Werebear, werewives. Yeah. Boom. I just think it's great that he turned into a polar bear and they brought a polar bear to Syria. Yeah, that seems like not a good place for polar bears. I I just can you imagine if you're just this peasant living in Syria and all of a sudden you see this king with his entourage and it's there's a giant white bear. Are there even bears in Syria? I feel no. like they're more of a northern thing. Yeah. I've never heard of a bear in Syria. Syrian listeners, I was going to ask about bears, but actually you guys just stay safe. Yeah. Yeah, do that. That would be terrifying. Actually, if we ha- if we have Syrian listeners, it's probably Bashar al-Assad, because I bet he's the only one in that country with internet access. True. So, Bashar al-Assad, if you're listening, go fuck yourself. <laughs> Woohoo! Oh, boy. Well, I have nothing to add there. <laughs> Sorry. No, it's, I mean, you're valid. I think just the various wares are all we've got there. Yeah, the wear creatures. Okay. D&D. What can we add here for a D&D game? Besides, obviously, having a character who is a polar bear. Yep, that's good. Which I think would be amazing. You can incorporate the jack-o'-lanterns if you wanted. And I do was like thinking, a... there, yeah, there's got to be something in that story that we can include. Oh, yeah. I mean, all you have to do is change the, um, change the deities a little bit. Mm-hmm. You can even make Jack like a minor patron for warlocks that's a good idea like trickster trickster jack yeah that'd be good for rogues too you could have like a local rogue who's just known as stingy jack and the legend is that he's no one's ever met him but his followers put like a little a little jack-o'-lantern out for him and that's Mm -hmm. where you know it's safe like a safe house you could do something like that i like the mythos you're building (laughs) and he's got like a legend of having cheated death but no one actually knows all right, what else? I feel like if you don't include the queen ranting at life, you're just, yeah. she's got to come in at some point. I think that at some point you should make your party get lost and end up in Syria. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> just turn it into like the Feywild or one of the Nine Hells or something. Just boom. No, modern Syria. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Like, it's one of the Nine Hells. It's just Syria. Oh. <laughs> Oh dear. Well, what else? I mean, I feel like you I mean you have the perfectly wonderful mechanics of the shapings and stuff. You could incorporate like learning the liberal arts. Like you go to magic school and learn how to take on a shaping. That's true. Which would be an interesting. That'd be a fun dynamic to to play with. I also like the idea of uh, incorporating magic as one of the liberal arts. <laughs> I'm standing by that. I am standing by that from now on until forever. We're just having, like, uh, uh, the schools in your setting talk about the liberal arts, and they're not the same ones that you're familiar with. Oh my gosh, that is perfect. That is perfect. It's like you're doing science, math, the liberal arts. It's like, oh, what'd you do in, what'd you do in your English class? Or what, what'd you do in the humanities this week? Well, we practiced, you know, summoning fae and 
you know, making homunculi. Be good. That'd be good. All right. I can't think of anything else, really. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, but no. no it's I pretty. It's pretty straightforward. You can, you can basically take the story and turn it into its own little side mission. Yeah. Where you know the king's like, I think we have this cursed animal, but I don't know what it is, and then your players have to figure out how to help the cursed animal. So you can do like a little mini, a mini side quest there. Yeah. Yeah, I like it. There we go. Okay. How many ages hence shall this our lofty scene be acted over? In states unborn and accents yet unknown. Echoes in modern culture. Well, since this is our Halloween episode, we have a lot of echoes in modern culture here. That was basically the point of this week's episode. Yeah, the the jack-o'-lanterns and werewolves are pretty much... Yep. Pretty straightforward. Yeah. Oh, I did mention the selkie, so that's that's a another connected piece of lore in terms of hiding skin. If you hide the selkie's clothes, then the selkie can't go back to the ocean. Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, we did have the Sherlock Holmes reference. Omitatus. <laughs> what about a D&D party? I feel like the... Marty Stew character from that second story is the obvious choice for a D&D party. The who? Sorry. I can't remember his actual name. Search the T. Theodore? Yeah. Theodore? Theodore. I was calling him uh, Marty Stew because that's like the, the term for an overpowered self-insert character yes. in fiction. Oh, I always heard that as, a, as um, Gary Stew. Mary Sue and oh. Gary Stew. Oh, I, I heard Mary Sue and Marty Stew. Marty Stew. I like that too. That also works. Yeah, he's very OP. Okay, so definitely him. Also Bisclavere. Yeah. They're two separate characters. Yeah, I, I think that's a good thing to establish is that for the purposes of our segments, if we have two different versions of the same story, the characters are different. They are totally different. Who Stingy else do Jack we want? Stingy Jack is a good rogue. Hmm? Stingy Jack. Good rogue. Yes, Stingy Jack. And who else? You've got room for one more. I feel like the aforementioned knight who... The Sherlock knight? Yeah, the Sherlock knight. Yeah. He seems like a wizard. He's at least knowledgeable. Yeah, he knows about magic. All right, awesome. I think Teodel might be a druid if he keeps turning into animals. I think so. So we've got Teodel the druid. We've got Bisclaver, who's like... I think he's just a fighter. Yeah. Or like a barbarian, except he like turns into... A monster. I mean, that doesn't have to be a class feature. He can just be a werewolf. True. Fair enough. And then Stingy Jack, who is our rogue. And the Sherlock Knight, who I'm going to go with, I don't know, wizard? Yeah. Wizard. There we go. Multi-class, because he's also a knight. Yeah. Yeah, there we go. Multi-class. High-level party. And they're all OP anyway. All right. The Tolkien Tally. So what did Tolkien borrow from this? <laughs> Well, we do have Bjorn in... That's true. We have a yeah. werebear. We do have a werebear. So Bjorn is obviously the old English word for bear. It's pretty straightforward. And he does, in The Hobbit, he says that his people were of that same ancestry. So that makes sense. They're supposed to be these big, fearsome kind of people who don't really exist anymore. And so he's like the last of his kind. He does go out and he... He doesn't hunt. He kills the bad guys. So he's not your evil werewolf. He's he's a good werewolf or a werebear. <laughs> and he's a vegetarian. He's like a lumberjack hippie in The Hobbit, which I really which I really like. What else? Is there anything else that Tolkien Tolkien uses here? There's a lot of shape-shifting in Tolkien actually in the expanded universe in terms of the Silmarillion people turn into birds and things. 
So that's a similarity. And there is there is a standard for chivalric virtue that we can sort of generally take that he modeled off of the lays and the chivalric patterns that he does use in things like Gondor, especially in the relationship mm-hmm. that Faramir has with his dad. And one of the more interesting things is that he... Tolkien particularly uses the formal and informal versions of you, which is to say thee and thou versus you with Aragorn and Eowyn in particular to denote how that relationship works. So that's very interesting as well. So there is this sort of chivalric thing that Aragorn has going for him. That's all I can think of, I think. Now I actually have to think of a sound effect for the Tolkien tally. Now let's sit at the kitchen table. I don't think we have any food. Noses. <laughs> Noses. I mean, he just rips off her nose. He doesn't actually eat it. Yeah, that's true. And no one's eating the pumpkins. They're just lanterns. They're also turnips. They're also turnips. Or rutabaga. Hmm. The Dungeon Master's Dictionary. Any words here that we can use? I mean, any one of these rants would work, to be honest. Right. Yes. So you could you could take any of those. You know, how dare you stoop so far beneath your rank as to believe one idiot? Or... I feel like we mentioned that, one, that there was something for the dictionary, and now I can't remember what it was. Hmm. Well, we can always use the shapings. Shapings is a term. Yes. So we can put shapings there. I do like this story, like... In, in both stories, because it does make you question, who is the real monster here? Is it the man who turns into a wolf or a bear? Or is it the woman who breaks his heart? What does it really mean to be a monster? I mean, I don't have anything to say to that. <laughs> That's so valid. Makes me sound like a, like a high school English teacher. Or like that opening song from The Hunchback of Notre Dame. How does that begin? I, that is one that I have not seen. You haven't seen The Hunchback of Notre Dame? I have not the, seen the a Disney lot version. of... No, I have not seen a lot of the Disney movies. Near, near the end, it says something like, who is the monster and who is the man? Oh. Talking about like the deformed Quasimodo versus the not deformed but evil Frollo. Ah, oh, yes, yes, yes. Okay. I'm not trying to get involved with Disney's lawyers, so the following audio clip is actually from the cover by Jonathan Young and Caleb Hiles. We will post a link to their YouTube video on the joke about that it is something that as a literary scholar i guess you could say it is something that i like to explore yeah like that is one of the main morals here in this story that is what marie is sort of laying out is there are standards of chivalric virtue and even though your husband might turn into a monster that does not make him a monster and he's protecting you and you need to stand by him (laughs) but anyway Although I'm sure that according to medieval folks, monster would just refer to any of what Dr. Hughes would call non-human human beings, yes. regardless of behavior. Precisely. Yeah, it does not matter what your behavior is. It's whether you're a non-human human being. Our, our version of monster has a different connotation. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
Street smarts! Do we have any lessons from this text? First off, there's so many relationship problems in this text. Yeah. Don't try and trick the devil is, is one. I mean, I feel like it worked out for him. Did it, though? Because he can't get into hell and he can't get into heaven. He's just stuck wandering. Do you want to go to hell? I feel like wandering is the better option. I mean, I guess. I'm told it's an unpleasant place. That's true. That's That's entirely fair. So maybe try and trick the devil, but be careful about it. Street smarts, don't turn into a coin. Yeah, there you go. Don't turn into a coin. Don't turn into anything. Conjure it. Yeah. Or if you are going to turn into something like a bear, don't tell your lover unless you really trust her. Establish trust early on in a relationship. Yeah. See, like this segment was meant to be funny, but the more we do it, the more it's like actual relationship issues. There are a lot of relationship issues in these texts. There are. Yeah, like establish trust with one another, communicate with one another. Like she shouldn't have to be worried about you cheating and you shouldn't have to be worried about telling her you're a werewolf. You know, open open lines of communication leads to a good relationship. This is not a healthy arrangement you have. Yeah. Also, don't put your clothes under a rock. That's gross. They're expensive. Yeah, also that. I mean, (laughs) street smart set. I still think the French version definitely made it sound like that was the straw that broke the camel's back. It does. It does. Maybe she maybe she like stitched put under those clothes. Ew. Maybe she put the effort yeah. into it or it was like a gift and she's like, You put what I gave you under a rock when you turn into a werewolf? Like being a werewolf I could understand, but putting those clothes under a rock? No. Hang them up. Yeah. Put them in a chest. You could give them back to me, babe. Right? You're a lord. You have money. You, that, that abandoned chapel? Just install a closet or something. Yeah, put a chest You're worried, in there. Lock, install a lock on it. Go figure, man. Yeah. Well, I think this just proves that no matter what societal level you're at, you can have relationship problems. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Best moment. They got lost and ended up in Syria. <laughs> I was gonna say, there's there's nothing else there. Especially if we consider that this like this saga is one of the northern Scandinavian sagas. Like how do you go yeah. from like Norway to Syria? How do you get lost? It's obviously set very far north because he's a polar bear. <laughs> it's How'd you get all the way down there? <sighs> Ridiculous. Amazing and ridiculous. Okay. Well, that's pretty easy. The court. I feel like there's a lot of good people to choose from here, so... Yeah, I started out thinking it was going to be an easy choice, but... Okay, we need to establish something. Okay. Stingy Jack is not mortal, because he... No, wait, no, he dies. He's just, he dies. He's, he's just, just got a weird trapped. afterlife. Yeah. He's, a, he's a ghost? Okay, so he is mortal. Do ghosts count? I guess they died. I mean, he did die. Okay, but it, like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't count Grimur, for instance, or Glamour. I wouldn't count Glamour, and Glamour is just a revenant. But what about before he was a revenant? Yeah, but at the end of the story, he's still a revenant. Like, he's still dead. If you really want him, I'll give him to you. Like, we can, we can no, make this work. No. Are you sure? No, no. I just wanted to try and establish some kind of precedent there. Also, I like the name Stingy Jack. It's great. All right. I feel like there are obvious choices, True. but I'm going to take the Sherlock Holmes knight from the Icelandic story. Nice. Which means, once again, I have 
We should start asking our re- our listeners to like come up with names for our nameless people. Yeah, that would be a good idea. If you have any ideas, listeners, for what we should call these otherwise nameless characters, please send them in. Because it's just a shame to, to have these wonderful characters without names. Sherlock or Holmeson. <laughs> yes! 100%! Oh my gosh, I'm gonna let you type that in. Oh, because I'm just gonna botch the spelling. I'm afraid I'm just gonna be really obvious about mine. Because Theodore is just so cool. Like, he just turns into a polar bear. And he's really smart. He knows math and science. Like, he's someone that I would want to have in the court. That's knows- true. I thought about him, too. He's the one I meant was, like, the yeah, obvious choice. Yeah. But I'm like, uh, I'm, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to go with the, the obvious choice here. He's a Gary Stu. Uh, yeah, I still like him. Especially because I've never... I've read Beast Claver before, but I had never read this saga before. So it's it's very new for me. Plus, he turns into a polar bear. That's just so cool. Final rating. All right. Now to rate them. All right. We have three different ones. That's true. How do we want to do this? I mean, I guess we could just do each one separately and then... Put them together. All right. Well, I'll let you go first. So we have Stingy Jack. We have Bisclavere. And we have Tidal. Let's see. Stingy Mm -hmm. Jack. There are some major holes in that story. Yeah, I like it, but there are some major holes. So I'm going to give it a six and a half. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. I was going to give it a six. And then Bisclaver. It's a classic. I can't rate it too harshly because it's very, very good. It's it's short. It's to the point. It does have some issues. And I'm having I'm having a hard time not immediately comparing it to the saga. Because the saga yeah. is just so outrageously funny. But on its own, Bisclaver is still a fantastic story. I'm going to give it an 8. Oh, I was going to give it an 8. So we are agreed on that one. And then Tiadel Saga. I like the unrestrained nonsense <laughs> at a lot of points. But I also feel the saga author lacks the kind of focus on who's who that most saga authors tend to really have. That's true. Like, instead of giving us a genealogy, he forgets, like, what Theodel's rank is and abruptly makes him the king of Syria for some reason. That's true. He does do that. We also have to remember that instead of this being a family saga or a historical saga, it is deliberately a retelling of Bisclaver. Which is why a lot of them don't have names. But even so. Even so. The fact that... The fact that they're monarchs of Syria and that comes out of nowhere. I feel like that uh, is that is a blow to the the author's skill. That's yeah, that's valid. And also I don't like that uh Theodel is given he's great at everything and he has all the joy of Aristotle, whatever that means. <laughs> See, I love that. I think it's hilarious. So what what are you gonna give it? I'm gonna give it a seven. A seven, okay. I think this one's hilarious. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I'm going too far, but I just got so much unrestrained joy out of this saga that I'm just, I'm going to give it a nine. All right. I really like this one. Like, he's so overpowered, it's funny. So I can't really, like, the whole thing is just such a fairy tale in the first place. I just think it's great. So that is, that is my vote there. All right. Well, do you have a sufficiently spooky leeches corner for us? Welcome. The Leech's Corner. It is the most, I think, viscerally disturbing of the ones that I've still got oh, in boy. this uh, document. Okay. 
Hit us with it. For worms in eyes. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah, you're right. Okay. For worms in eyes. Take seed of henbane, shed it on gleeds, which we now know are hot coals because that came up in another one. That's right. Add two saucers full of water, set them on two sides of the man, and let him sit there over them. Jerk the head hither and thither over the fire and the saucers also. Then the worms shed themselves into the water. This is so violent. <laughs> I mean, you may recognize it. It's very similar to the toothworm thing we had earlier. Yeah, where the, the worm falls out. Yeah, except that was over a cloth instead of into water. And you don't have to jerk his head around. He just sits there. And also the henbane oh. is diluted into a candle instead of just being thrown on coals. That's true. So you've got basically burning henbane and hot water. And you, like, smoke it out of his eyes? Yep, there's more. Oh. Oh, no. Okay. All right. This is a uh, kind of a list of eye-related things. Okay. Yes. For Let's dry disease in the eyes, which is called fig, which I've never heard of, and in Latin is called chemosier. I have no idea if that's accurate. That doesn't sound like Latin at all. But anyway. The yolk of a hen's egg and seed of marcha and olusatrum and garden mint. Again for the disease fig. Break to pieces a hawk shank unsodden of a sheep. Apply the marrow to the eyes. Ooh. See, those I could, I could understand actually sort of working. But I don't know if sheep marrow is going to do anything. For thick eyelids. <laughs> is this a problem people have? <laughs> Apparently, because there, there are a few remedies for this in this one. Oh, is that like if you get a sty or something? Could be. Oh, okay. For thick eyelids, take three handfuls of mugwort, three of salt, three of soap. Boil them until two parts out of three of the ooze be boiled away, then preserve in a copper vessel. Huh, so it's like a soap. Yeah, it doesn't actually say what you do with it. It just says put it in a copper vessel. I, well, I feel like you would rub it on your eye. Like, it feels like an anti-aging cream. Yeah, it could be. Like a cosmetic anti-aging cream. Because what is it? It's it's salt, soap, and mugwort. an herb. Yeah. Mugwort. Yeah. See, that just seems like something you'd pick up at a farmer's market. It does, actually. You just reduce it, and then, you know, you get this little jug of soap. Yeah. Also for him who hath thick eyelids, take a copper vessel. Put therein cathartic seeds and salt there among. Take kelandine and bishopwort and cuckoo sour and atorlotha and springwort and English carrot and somewhat of radish and raven's foot. That one is an herb, not a foot. I checked. Okay. <laughs> then wash them all. Then pour wine on. Let it stand. Strain again into the copper vessel. Then let it stand 15 nights, and the dregs will be good. To drink? Uh, nope. Have with thee clean curds, and introduce them into the vessel in which the dregs are, as much of the curd as may cleave thereon. Then scrape the scrapings off the vessel. That will be a very good salve for the man who hath thick eyelids. Oh, wow. That's a complicated one. Yes. That's a lot of herbs. <laughs> Plus, like, carrot. Just throw in some carrot there and some radish. Instead of, like, reducing it over a fire or something, you just kind of let it all congeal and evaporate. And then yeah. curds. I mean, curds, like, because it's like, you know, you have to smear it somehow. So I guess instead of using oil, you use curds. I would worry about it getting moldy. Yeah, it doesn't. Yeah. Mm. Especially if you're leaving it out for 15 nights. Well, then again, maybe that's the point. Maybe they're hoping they'll get one of those antibiotic molds. <laughs> Gross. Yeah, so. There we go. Well, if you feel like, uh, you know, doing some 
Halloween conjuring, you can always try one of these if you feel like you have particularly thick eyelids. Or worms in your eyes. Or worms in your eyes, you know, because that is a common problem, apparently. Well, worms is a general term in Old English. It could mean any kind of vermin. True, but I don't really want to think about what kind of insects or creatures you would have crawling in your eyes. Like, that's... I'm very glad that we have modern medicine sometimes. (laughs) Yeah, now the only bugs on your face are the ones that are supposed to be there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, always remember there are billions and billions of tiny little living creatures living all over your skin at all times. And if you want to feel unsettled, look up eyelash mites. You have them. Oh, yeah. Everybody's got them. (laughs) Just remember, you're a living organism and an ecosystem. There are so many things depending on you for life. All right. So, how do you want to close out this episode? (laughs) Um, I mean... I think we've pretty much covered it. You've got some new werewolf lore. I I hope this comes in handy if you plan on doing like a Halloween D&D session or I don't know, whatever else you have in mind for a Samhain party. And yeah, stay safe. Happy Halloween if you so choose to celebrate. And we'll see you next time. Yep. See you next time. <laughs> Thank you for listening to The Maniculum. Please consider leaving a rating and review in Apple Podcast to help support the project. For more geeky additions or to see our sources and notes, check out our blog, Marginalia, at themaniculumpodcast.com. You can also join our Facebook group, The Maniculum Podcast, to join in on discussions about all things medieval. And feel free to reach out. We're on Twitter, at Maniculum, and on Instagram, at Maniculum Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. And special thanks to Sandra Boyle, who created the music for our show. You can check out her project, Sugar Glass, on Spotify. Scandinavian Viking tradition of people there is someone singing outside and I don't know if you can hear it or not sorry he just started I can a little bit okay he's like singing shouting and I'm not entirely sure why so it's Ireland aren't there people wandering around singing all the time yes and they're all drunk I wasn't gonna say it I definitely will, because it's true. Uh, All right, so you were telling us there are two types of werewolves.